What's good? Assalamu alaikum wabarakatuh. Today we're back with another episode, and uh, this time we got the infamous Asadullah Ali. But who is he? So Asadullah Ali, he's actually a friend of mine. We met in real life when uh, he came to Ohio State University um, to have a couple of events over there. So uh, those events went really, really well, and uh, we became friends ever since. Uh, I'll just read uh, about Asadullah from his website. Asadullah, Asadullah Ali al-Andalusi is a research fellow for Yaqeen Institute, member of the Muslim Debate Initiative, and founder of the Andalusian Project, an independent research platform for Islamic studies. He holds degrees in both Western and Islamic philosophy and is currently pursuing his master's in library and information science. He specializes in topics related to the philosophy of science, atheism, terrorism, Islamic ethics, and other issues facing the global Muslim community. Asadullah, welcome to the show. How are you? Good, Abdullah. So, we're good. So, uh, go ahead, Fahad. Uh, Amar, you want to say something? No, I was going to say, like, uh, the way I heard about you was uh, from, like, Facebook posts of where you would just refute atheist stuff and ex-Muslims. That was, like, pretty awesome. So, I was like, all right, now we get to dig into your brain a little bit today. Cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I came across you about a, about a year ago as well uh, from Facebook. Well, it's nice. To, you know, it was nice meeting you guys, and uh, it was fun going to OFU. And um, yeah, I kind of miss going. I wish I could go back, but you guys kind of went dark. So. Uh, <laughs> now we're gonna we'll find something. We'll find something in the future, inshallah. Inshallah. So, biggest question that people need to know. Um, people are going to end up, uh, the listeners, okay, if they're not fathers already, they're going to end up becoming fathers. And oftentimes uh, the, our listeners are also siblings. They have mm-hmm. siblings. Um, they have parents. They have relatives. And uh, more often than, than not, you hear of people within your community leaving Islam or becoming, uh, quote-unquote, free thinkers or atheists mm-hmm. or uh, or agnostics, or deists, or Christians, or people, basically people leaving Islam. So, uh, my question to you is, why do people, why do Muslims leave Islam, particularly in the West? Hmm. Well, there are a number of factors, um, you know, and that, and that could extend beyond this conversation, and I don't even think there's enough time to address everything in detail. Uh, many of it, you know, much of it has to do with emotional reasons, um, personal experiences with other Muslims, negative ones, uh, personal experiences with the host country that a lot of Muslims are migrating to, like in the West, uh, you know, seeing the advances in technology and the superiority of certain um, policies or domestic issues or the organization of society in comparison to their, to their you know, their, their home country. And or you know just being seeped in Western culture in general without much of a Islamic example, a superior Islamic example to compare it to, those are all um, factors which you know move people towards rejecting the faith. And uh, explosives themselves will say that there are intellectual reasons. Although of course I would disagree with that. But they usually cite certain arguments or quote unquote errors in the faith or moral issues within the faith. That lead them away. Um, although, from my own personal experience, I've, I've noticed that these are mostly rationalizations rather than and justifications for having already left, and not necessarily the prime motivators. So, yeah, I mean, those those would be like that's the general, that's the gist of it. Um, 
it, I don't know if that's too concise for you. So <laughs> no, uh, yeah. You, you, yeah, you mentioned emotional reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Like, could you like could you give examples of emotional reasons? It would something be like, uh, oh, my dad didn't let me go to prom growing up. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have I couldn't have a boyfriend. Is something like that a reason? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's rather holistic in the sense that, like I said, when you're seeped into another culture you feel restricted because that culture practices a certain lifestyle or certain lifestyles different from the one that your parents typically want for you. So in a way it's, it's moving away from, from the one that you grew up in is not only a form of rebellion, but uh, other lifestyles look more enticing when you're told that you can't participate in them. So in a way uh, there's a sense of freedom for moving away from your own faith of course, it is rather superficial uh, because it doesn't take into account the the real value, the axiological or the the ontological value of of the particular lifestyle that you're practicing. Um, it's sort of a reactionary thing, and in that way, it's emotional. And the other way emotions sort of tie into that is rebellion, uh, not just against your parents, because you know, even though a lot of explosives are quite young. That's part of it, but the other part is like rebelling against your own culture, your own uh, your own given identity. Because when something's imposed on you um, from birth, you know you feel a need to sort of break away from it sometimes, especially if you feel a burden. And that can always, and that burden can be felt through personal experience with one's parents, friends, or, or uh, you know um, other family members, or this community in general. So being slighted in any such way can sort of move somebody towards um, another direction, and it's it's quite natural to feel that way. Uh, but I'm not really concerned necessarily about the motivating factors because I feel like a lot of the motivating factors that lead people to become ex-Muslims are largely uncontrollable. Uh, what I mean to say is like, you can't control the behavior of everyone around you. Right. You, know, mm-hmm. you can't control a lot of your situations in life. You know, you can tell other Muslims you need to be nice to people so they don't leave the faith, but that's not always going to stick. You know, a lot of the responsibility is on the individual. So I like to focus a lot on the psychological and the rational factors that that they or that they claim uh, motivated them, and that they largely use to rationalize and justify them leaving, because that's really where their responsibility lies. You know, like I said, you can't control how your parents act, you can't control how other people act. You know, if you experience those negative things, you experience those negative things, um, and that's just largely out of your control. So I like to focus on things that you can control. So that's why I don't really focus on on those emotional aspects. I just I focus on the arguments they use and the rationalizations they use and see if those are valid or not. Um, yeah. Can we can we get into some of those arguments that they might use? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, like recently, like what's a common one. Yeah, recently oh. posted about. I, what I call the explosion trump card. You know, they, they do like to focus a lot on morals and things like this and, and what they consider to be theological problems. Well, theology is probably the least of their concerns. But most of all, they love to focus on the quote-unquote scientific errors in the Quran and, and Islamic scholarship in general. Um, this is their trump card that, that tends to be the primary rationalization behind why they left the faith. Although, this, like I said, this is always post hoc. It's something that they only started to look into after they left or after they wanted to leave. And now they're saying, oh, this is the reason why I left. Um, because most of the time you can catch them. They don't even know what they're reading half the time. So, for example, like I said, the scientific miracles is the biggest thing that they go into. And um, and it's very easily to, easy to refute because it's, it's basically just one big straw man of how uh, the Quran is supposed to be read. Uh, traditional 
scholarship for the past 1400 years has generally read the Quran in a non-scientific way. Um, and it's only recently become popularized on the 19th, 20th century uh, after Muslims were becoming colonized and the Ottoman Empire was falling. It was, it was a form of compensating for the inferiority complex that Muslims were getting. So, you know, when you can see science in the Quran, now you don't have to tell everyone that, oh, yeah, we're, we're a religion or our culture is inferior to the West. Discovered all these things because it was already in the Quran, you know, 1400 years ago. We don't have to worry uh, about catching up anymore, you know, because we're on par with them. And uh, that's the reason it's really become popular is to sort of compensate for this inferiority that a lot of Muslims feel. And a lot of ex-Muslims who left the faith, you know, they kind of were brought up in that culture where this was a primary argument that was also used. So it's also very much the fault of the Muslims in this respect. But it's really largely a straw man of the Islamic scholarly tradition and how the Quran should be generally read. And uh, even... So it's kind of the Muslims' fault as well for doing this because they kind of propagate yeah, this? Yeah, no, no. This is the primary of the Muslims' the almost fault in many respects. But it's not the scholarly tradition. It isn't the scholars' fault necessarily. Most scholars rejected this this form of exegesis long before it became popular, and even afterwards. Even today, you have a lot of Muslim scholars and da'is who are who are who are on the offensive against this methodology, this approach. And yet, ex-Muslims refuse to address those criticisms. Refuse to address what Muslims actually believe in this respect, and they ref they prefer to attack low-hanging fruit. You know, they like to go after Zakir Naik a lot because of his large following, but. They don't go after everyone else. I mean, they certainly don't go after my work, even though I don't like, I don't even adopt that approach at all. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things they use. But you also notice that even when they try to, to critique the Quran in this way by attacking this methodology, they don't really understand what they're reading. So recently, you know, I posted something about this issue um, and uh, an individual, I think it was an ex-Muslim, came into my post and they want to show, well, even if the Quran doesn't address scientific, it still has scientific errors, right? And 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 what the example they gave me showcases sort of the lack of reading comprehension and critical thinking involved in a lot of these critiques. So, for example, uh, the passage that they mentioned uh, was, um, let me see here. Let me just read it out real quick. Surahs, uh, Surah 86, Ayahs 6 through 7. And in those ayats, uh, if you happen to recall, uh, it basically says man is created from a, squir a spurting fluid issuing from between the backbone and the ribs. And, um, you know, so their their whole entire reading of this was quite fascinating to me because it was so horribly wrong. So the, the passage is very clear. It says man is created from a fluid that comes from between the backbone and the ribs, right? Mm. And their reading of that passage was that the fluid comes from the backbone and from the ribs, right? So, so not even that. I, I bet not even the Arabs at that time they would have interpreted it like. No, 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 not even that. But just the funny thing is that the the Arabic word for for between here is baini, which which is between like for us, it's it's the space between two objects or two things, right? So their reading of it was that the fluid comes from the backbone and from the ribs. Never mind the fact that the backbone and the ribs here are interpreted in a very different way as well by the early Arabs because for them, they didn't have modern medical terminology. You know, so for them, the backbone could put them in like a whole section of the body that was not simply that one, like the spinal, it wasn't just the spine. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like a very large portion of the back area of the human being. And the ribs were not just, uh, you know, the ribs that we consider today. It's also the chest bone. 
So, and I would imagine that this claim wouldn't be the first time that this claim is even being made because uh, even the Arabs they they knew that if like you were to castrate a camel, for example, they would it wouldn't be able to make sperm. Yeah, I mean they they understood these things, but you know the the passage the basic the passage is very simple. It's just saying that the fluid comes from within the body. Yeah, exactly. That's basically, what it's saying that's all it's saying. Okay, because there were some myths back then that it actually did come from particular areas like the backbone of the ribs, and the Quran was just correcting that and saying, no, it comes from within the body, okay, between those areas. And But the ex-Muslims, you know, they read it as though from, so showcasing their lack of reading comprehension, understanding of basic words, because when you, when you, when you have to completely erase the word between there in order to make your point, it showcases that, you know, you really don't know what you're talking about, you've never read anything in your entire life. So, you know, these very simplistic sort of ludicrous ideas uh, and arguments that are being proposed in order to rationalize their, their views. And when you even bring up the fact that this approach, this whole scientific miracles approach just came about recently, like in the past 100, 150 years, it yeah, doesn't make some reason. The ex-Muslim, he would challenge you by saying that between the backbone and the ribs, well, that's like your heart, that's your lungs area, for example. Well, no, because the general thing, the space between is like, it doesn't have to be the same proportion as the objects themselves. I mean, for them, like I said, if you if you look at how the Arabs were, were speaking back then, for them, the backbone, the ribs, just the, the, the backbone was basically your entire back. You know, yeah. the, the, the ribs was basically your entire front portion of your body. So they weren't trying to be anatomically correct in accordance with modern medical terminology. You know, that's okay, not yeah, that makes sense. So that you know, so that's what I'm trying to say is like not only is the objective of the Quran not to give scientific information, but a general statement like that can be so easily twisted by these individuals desperate to find a rationalization for the rejection of their faith. So this is something that I point out recently. <laughs> and this is why I also typically don't find a lot of ex-Muslims arguments to be very convincing because they're typically very simplistic, rather juvenile, and, and also very reactive. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a question. You mentioned uh, the scientific, like you mentioned that a lot of these guys, their arguments are simplistic and they focus on scientific critiques, or critiques, right, or the scientific method. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, why is it why is it the standard of truth is measured by the scientific method? Well, that's like, also a very recent thing as well because even during you know prior to the Enlightenment period or even during the Enlightenment period, it was still very contentious. Um, but during the Enlightenment period and prior, science was never really the measure of everything. That didn't really start coming about until the positivist movement around the 17th, 18th century, 18th century primarily. Um, well, that's pre-positivism, so we'll say a little later than that. But uh, the whole idea that science is the, the measure of all things was is really a very recent development, um, post-enlightenment. And today, you know, even among the lay population around the world, whether they be Muslim or non-Muslim, Science is, is considered to be like the authority and on all things knowledge. And um, it, it, like I said, it's a very recent trend in human thinking. Um, some people say it's for the better. I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. Maybe in certain respects, like when it actually comes to subjects that are science-based and technology-based. But when it comes to like sociology, religion, and, and claims that uh, fall outside of that realm, it's a very dangerous belief to have because... Um, it reduces everything to sort of physical phenomena, which, you know, is quite impossible to really think about it. Um, yeah. What are, some of the, what are some of the other challenges that people might have that, like, so have you dealt with any, uh, ex, like, I don't even know how to say it. 
So have any people ever reached out to you to ask them like, oh, my son, he's not no longer a Muslim anymore? Several times. Along the lines of that. So what are the most common um, contentions that they would have? And most, how do you deal with that? Number one is scientific miracles, scientific errors, quote unquote. Number two is also related to science in some way, but basically why is the Muslim world not as advanced as the West? Uh, then number three usually has to do with violence. Like why are there so many terrorists in the Muslim world? And then finally, I guess you could say with the moral objections to like women's rights and things. Actually, it's, it's quite funny because uh, most of the time that I get approached, even by ex-Muslims themselves, uh, women's issues, things like that, you think that they would be like a main thing, but that's actually their least concern. Um, they do bring it up, but it's actually the last thing they bring up. Uh, and largely because I think a lot of them are, are quite sexist themselves and they really don't care. Uh, no, I'm being frank, <laughs> you know, because uh, they come from, the, a lot of these ex-Muslims come from uh, certain cultures or certain areas within that culture that do mistreat women quite a bit and use Islam to justify it uh, erroneously, but so their, their sentiments towards women are already quite bad, so they don't see many problems with it. They like to use it as like a, a, like a, a stick to beat Muslims over the head with, you know, oh, well, how you treat women. But in general, they themselves and their own families treat women quite poorly. You just go to the ex-Muslim Reddit, you can find all sorts of horrible talk, speech towards, especially ex-Muslim sisters there, who often, I don't want to say sisters, but, you know, women who complain about the tr their treatment by other ex-Muslim males, um, actually, I even posted a thread about that recently as well in my Facebook post about all the sexual harassment that a lot of these girls uh, endure. And I have been approached, and I'm not going to name names here, but I have been approached by the wives of ex-Muslims in the past, uh, particularly prominent ones. I and some other individuals have been approached by uh, some, some of the wives of some of these ex-Muslim figures who, and they've complained of abuse, domestic abuse, emotional blackmail, theft. Why, wait, why would they come to you? Well, because they're still Muslims. Okay, and, but like, why would they come to you? Okay, well, people? myself and their Dawah community, and okay. they know us because we're the only ones who are responding to a lot of these online ex-Muslims. Yeah, so they find us through videos or through network, and then they go, okay, I need help with this. Can you please help my, change my husband or something? And that's generally how the discussion starts. And then what happens is that they go into detail. Mm. And then you realize that these women are getting beat, that they're getting pushed out of their homes, that because they don't, they, because they oppose their husband's atheism. Because they, yeah, they didn't give in. And their husbands are like emotionally blackmailing them, refusing to give them money if they don't become atheist. I'm not yeah. joking. Like it's, it's really bad. There are actually some people. And the reason that I can't speak about their names is because these women promise, I promise these particular sisters that we wouldn't say anything uh, in you know protection for themselves and also for their own families and their their children. But some of them have even for, have even gone so far as to basically <clears throat> leave social media altogether because some of their husbands found out that they were speaking to us and mm -hmm. threatened. Wow. And we yeah. know of one particular moderator of ex-Muslim Reddit, also a famous, a prominent figure who I'm not going to name, I'm just going to let you guess, who has gone out of his way to cover up the abuse of a lot of these sisters because he thinks it's bad publicity for the ex-Muslim movement. Yeah, like, 
it's, it's always uh it's always like it's kind of ironic actually yeah ironic i was gonna say because many of these kafar you see amongst the non-muslim community as well like the abuse that they have with their women that they're not even muslim and we see it right all the time with the with the harassment and stuff. Well, that's the reason they, they have, pick on Islam so much and other Muslims is because they're they're actually projecting and compensating for their own issues. Exactly, like they're the ones getting drunk and beating their wives and whatnot. No, they are, and there there are the number of incidents. I'm not saying all of them, but there are a number of prominent ex-Muslims who do these things, and it's actually rising. And we're just waiting for another ex-Muslim within their movement to come out and say something. But it's going to be huge. It's going to be massive. You're going to find out. But you know what's going to happen after that, right? We've already predicted what's going to happen. So no, once this all gets aired out, all the ex-Muslims everywhere are going to go, oh, you know, it's because he still has Islam in him. That's the reason. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what they're going to say. Right? It's still Islam's fault after he left it. That's the reason. Right. Well, it's like the dumbest thing because, like, you see how protective fathers are of their daughters in the Muslim mm-hmm. community, right? Yeah. I mean, there are some bad apples, obviously. But yeah, know, for sure. But it's not like Islam. But we come out and point them out. We go after them. Like, you know, the whole recent thing with the whole, uh, what was it? Those those fraudsters doing the Rukia. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So we came, out, we came out after them, right? Muhammad Hijab, yeah. all these other individuals. They, we came out publicly and said, these people are frauds. They're horrible, blah, blah, blah. X Wilson still took advantage of that. Yeah, they did. They did. It's so it's like, up. Dude, they're, the, they're you. The guy's an atheist. He literally said, yes, I didn't have faith. At yeah, this point. He was abusing his wives. So that's just one. He was trying to force both of his wives to become atheists through the emotional black bill and, you know, all this other stuff. He was abusing them. So this was, this is just one example that's already been aired out. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> They're atheists. Yeah. Like yeah, I, I remember listening on Muhammad Hijab's podcast. Or sorry, not Muhammad Hijab. My bad. Uh, Muhammad Khilan, his podcast. That uh, the majority, the main reason why Muslims re- continue to remain Muslim is because of the Muslim community itself. So it's, it's typically for emotional reasons that people um, stay Muslim or or well, choose to leave Islam. It's not intellectual reasons. I mean, the thing is, too, you have to understand that part of it. Yeah, I mean, a large part of it. Right. I mean, there are emotional. See, because I would never say that it's necessarily wrong to justify your beliefs through emotion. So let me clarify that real quick. Because you know, the human being is more than just the rational. Yes. There, are also, there are a lot of things. You know, humans, spiritual, the emotional, the psychological. There are a lot of factors that are involved in choosing one's belief. And, you, of course, the belief that you choose has to be coherent with all those experiences. Now, my issue with the ex-Muslim community in particular is that they go out of their way to basically go, oh, no, no, we only left because we're superior, you know, we have superior rationality and logic. We didn't do anything based on emotion or culture or anything like this. But that's obviously nonsense. Um, And they try to make it as though, you know, they're superior because of this. And that's the reason I like to point it out a lot. Now, if, of course, if if your primary reason for staying with a religion is, is emotional, then I think that is a problem. I think that, of course, it should be balanced out with rational reasons and you know justifications. You can't just be like, "Yeah, because I'm just happy being." A yeah, but but the thing is that like most people are not smart, right? Well, I think so most should... people have the capacity to be. I mean, I think most people are within the level of intelligence that they can rationalize their beliefs in a in a, in a real with you know real justifications, real valid reasoning. The problem is, is that people refuse to do so. Um, 
you know, we live in a time period where we have more information than any other time in history at our fingertips. We have where everything's accessible to us. And yet there are so many illiterate people out there, you know, yeah. so, um, by, by their own will, by their own voluntary, you know, like. That's, yeah. And, th- and those people actually, they tend to be the most uh, zealous in their faith, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily, but they I would tend say to be, that right? people are more certain of themselves uh, in in uncompromising fashion, uncharitable fashion, if they happen to be willingly ignorant. Um, so you know, going back to explosives, for example, you know, you have a lot of individuals who they can't tell you basic points of doctrine in Islam, but they're adamant that Islam is wrong, regardless of that. Yeah. Um, and of course, on the other side of the spectrum, you have a lot of individuals who believe Islam wholeheartedly, but they don't even know basic aqida or even just basic fiqh. Okay, so, so so then why do they leave Islam to begin with? It's because of the well, typically, you know, it seems like the similar similar mentality is simply changing sides. As I pointed out in my recent post as well, you know, um, the reason that ex-Muslims are so fond of picking on lower-hanging fruit or picking lower-hanging fruit is because they fell from the same branch. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? <laughs> they're they're on the same level of, of 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 argument and intellect. Okay. When they left, so that's the reason they go after those things because that's the highest thing they've ever seen. They've never studied beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, so, like, you, you'll never see them like you'll never see ex-Muslims attacking the works of al-Ghazali or Ibn Rushd. Like, they can't. They don't even understand half of what they're being, of what's being read. <laughs> like, they, they don't, they do not understand those things. They can't, well, they refuse. Yeah, they can't even, they don't even understand Arabic half the time as well. When they're critiquing the Quran, they're going off, like, translation. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's okay to go off translation here and there. But my point is, because, I mean, there's a lot of advanced works and intermediate works even that have been translated that you can read and learn about Islam in depth, you know, but these individuals, they haven't gone that far at all. I mean, like, I love it when you hear, oh, yeah, I've studied the Quran. I read it three times in my life. It's like, what? <laughs> like, it takes, yeah, me, exactly. it takes me a day to read it once. Like, what the, <laughs> or, you know, or it's like, oh, I've read it three times or I've read Ibn Kathir, and which means they've skimmed translation of Ibn Kathir that, you know, and then they're like, <laughs> yeah, I studied Islam. And it's like, all you have to do is go to their own sources and you see that they're wrong. It's very simple. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a lot of posturing. Mm-hmm. But then you said that, that there are two reasons that people primarily leave Islam is because number one, intellectual or number one is emotional reasons. And the second one is intellectual reasons, right? No, I say that the, the claimed reasons as to why they left, I would say the primary mm-hmm. reasons are psychological and emotional, emotional right? Or, you know, and, and you said really being seeped into the culture that they're in. Mm-hmm. And you said that um, we don't have control over that. We don't have control over, over the there. external factors. Like, so the things that we need to be addressing. So my approach is that I don't, I'm not a counselor. I mean, I can sit down and I can counsel people to an extent, but I'm not a trained counselor. Like if you came to me and you had a psychological problem or you had an emotional trauma, you know, I can't sit here and be like, solve your issue. You know, that's mm-hmm. something that you, that requires a professional. But when it comes to things that I think are within your control, within your responsibility, more so at least, are the the justifications that you use for leaving a faith. So, for example, there's no – if your justifications don't have any logical backing, then it's not a justification. If you have no rational means for leaving, then then it's it's not rational, right? 
And that's right. really within the control of the individual. That's something that people can control. And they choose either to do so or not to do so. So that's what I typically address. Um, and I think that's how, what many diets should be addressing and not trying to go, oh, yeah, well, if we address these psychological issues, yeah, you can talk about them. But if you're not a professional, you're not going to help somebody who's, like, suffering from bipolar disorder. You right. know, like, you know, I, I can't. Yeah, but, but there, there are other psychological issues that you can kind of control, like, um, have you seen, like, Prager University by any chance? Yeah, I watch them occasionally for entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, so the, the reason I bring them up is because Prager University, they form a, like, a sort of conservative. Intellectual, intellectual community for conservative people. Yeah, if you want to call right, it they, that. Yeah, they make conservatives feel like as if they're not stupid, entirely stupid. Well, that's, that's fun. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so, so I was thinking about how, like, having Muslims do something similar. Like, like he's talking know. about like the format, like the idea of those little small videos where they talk about statistics yeah, and stuff. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, there are there are groups out there that are already doing that. You know, to an extent, there's like, um, you know, Yakin Institute and others who are starting to pick up this, you know, this sort of intellectual space has really, yeah, really, really started to become people. developed online by the Muslim community. It's still still sort of in its early phase, but it's picking up a lot of steam. Um, Unfortunately, Muslims are largely... The problem is not necessarily the spaces, though. I mean, like, the spaces are being developed, but the problem is that Muslims themselves don't really... You have a group in the Muslim community that wants these spaces, and you have another group in the community who doesn't care. Yeah, it doesn't care. that, That think that it's a, it's not necessary to have these yeah. spaces yeah. Uh, because they live in a little bubble. They're kind of naive. Or, or, you know, wherever, India or something, where they feel like their Muslims are the majority, so they don't need to do anything, but they don't see what's going on mm-hmm. everywhere else. So they oh, well, we, we don't need to address these arguments because, you know, we just ignore them, they'll go away. And then they then they wonder why their their cousin or their brother or their sister are becoming an ex-Muslim. They're like, why is this happening? You know, <laughs> and then... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they take um, them for Rukia. Yeah, they take them for Rukia or they just play the Quran on the max volume and hope that does something. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, like, yes, yeah, so like, regarding this topic of, uh, you know, why they're leaving and you said you focus, we focus, you should focus on what we can, what we can control and what they can control. So how do you go about setting like a, a stronger base for them to not fall, like go for these pitfalls? Like, would it be, because like, would it be like, hey, we don't evaluate truth by the scientific method? Like, what what kind of values would you instill in someone? You know, when you're edu- or, teaching yeah. them about Islam, or what, what kind of curriculum would you, or what, well, what kind of curriculum would you enforce on? First off, I think the large problem is is that you know, a lot of the younger Muslim community, especially in the West, you know, they're constantly being thrown into secular society. It's constantly bombarding them, so they don't really have a choice but to address what they're seeing and what they're experiencing on a daily basis. Unfortunately, within the Muslim community, <laughs> the minority community, or even the majority community, there is a lack of concern for addressing these issues or learning about these things. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the strategy for a lot of Muslims, especially the first generation immigrants is simply to ignore or to focus their attention elsewhere and hope that it yeah. can goes away. Data evolution is haram. Yeah, I mean, not allowed to think like that. One answer, you know, one line responses and just say ignore it. 
Same thing even with sex. Same thing. Like, don't think about it. You're good. <laughs> That's how we solve it, right? And, you know, that, that may work back home because you're surrounded by a lot of other Muslims who are there to constantly remind you. And, and yeah, the culture tells you to believe in Allah, right? But when you're surrounded by 99% of the population that doesn't have those same values, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, so one of the things that I've sort of vied for over the past several years is, is that Muslims need to start learning philosophy. And, a lot, and I've been met with a lot, of, a lot of pushback, especially by the older generations who claim that philosophy is haram. And it's like, okay, well, if philosophy is haram, how do you expect to learn about the philosophies that you're engaging with? You know, so Those philosophies are haram too. Yeah, well, they may be wrong, but how do you know how to address them? How can you address them if you don't understand what they are? It's like saying, well, we're going to go to war with this one nation over here, but we don't know anything about them. We don't want to know anything about them. We don't know what weapons they have, and we don't care. It's like, well, that's not going to help you. You, know, yeah. you need to tell about what you're experiencing before you yeah, I think. Yeah, I think, I think, like, it's, I think what they say, well, I, I don't know which ones you talk to, but, like, from what I know, I've learned that it's not when you're like when it comes to sifat of Allah, but when it comes to these ideologies, you need it, right? Like feminism is a type of, liberalism is a type of philosophy. And they say, well, you're going to become an ex-Muslim. It's like, I have never met one ex-Muslim that took a philosophy course. Yeah, I never met one ex-Muslim who took a philosophy course. I mean, maybe, but the majority of ex-Muslims I see online, they don't know, they don't know like basic logical fallacies. Like they've never been in the philosophy yeah. or they've yeah. been in the philosophy 101 course. They think because they read Descartes or Hume, now all of a sudden they know everything about philosophy and they're, they're basically. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, okay. So Daniel, you say, Daniel, he said something very similar. Hmm. Like basically just don't take your philosophy 101, or if you're going to go delve into philosophy, take the philosophy of science and like specialize in something and like go full, yeah, but what I said, you know, I think I said to you earlier was that when we met is like if you're going to take philosophy, don't think that you've learned everything just because you've taken one course. Right, like everything that you're being shown is just basic stuff. Like you have to understand that philosophy, the the, the field of philosophy has gone on for generations, and there have been people who have responded to the people that you're reading. Mm-hmm. You know, and unless you read what they've said. You know, you shouldn't be certain about what you're reading because there's a for every major philosopher out there, there's somebody who refuted them or who has tried. You know, and it's a it's just an ongoing discourse. You know, not one philosophy is completely set in stone um, as the definitive answer to everything. You know, and and so it's always funny when I find like, oh yeah, I I read Freud who's a psychologist really, but or I read uh, Hume and I read Descartes, so now I know every. You know, I know that Islam is wrong, religion is bad. I'm like, are you, I mean, and I always look at these people, I'm like, are you stupid? <laughs> Have you ever read Heidegger? No, I've never read Heidegger. Of course you've never read Heidegger, because you think Descartes was something special. <laughs> you, know, that's the, you know, that's what I mean. It's like, it's like, it's like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. If you're familiar with that, it's like, mm-hmm. um, when, you, when you don't know much about a subject, like your confidence in the subject is really small. But then as soon as you learn a little bit more, your confidence skyrockets. Like, oh, I know everything. As soon as you finish the intro course, you think you know everything. Yeah. And then as soon as you learn more and you become more proficient in it, your confidence in that subject just starts to decrease. And it's pretty shallow. And, and then you it know, starts to increase back up after you've done it for like 20 years. Yeah, and I don't want to just pick on explosives here. You know, it's, it's really uh, sort of a cross-cultural, cross-demographic issue. Because we live in a world now where shallow thinking is is sort of, how should I say, um, promoted and honored. Uh, people don't like to read beyond a few paragraphs. 
and they think that if you if you write or speak more than than what is needed, quote unquote, in accordance with most people's attention span today, that means that you're speaking nonsense. So there's these default views now that being erudite, you know, having a sophisticated position is somehow indicative of nonsense, um, which showcases how stupid a lot of people are now. And what I mean by stupid is not necessarily lack of intelligence, but willful ignorance. Right. Um, and that's why, I, that's why I like the podcast setting a lot. Uh, that's why I like the podcast setting. Is because well, I mean, it helps to go into nuance. A little bit more. You know, but you know, that's why you'll see amongst ex-Muslims, uh, they're very popular on the Internet, mostly and not within academic communities is because on the internet sound bites and shallow information are considered to be scholarship. Um, right. You know, what I like to refer to, and this may be very rude to a lot of people, but what I like to refer to as the intellectual peasantry, you know, <laughs> the peasants have risen up against, <laughs> against the noble intellectual peasantry. Uh, of the, of the intellectual world in the academia, you know, and they have claimed now, the territory of the internet as their dominion, and now they've risen up against their masters. And you know, <laughs> no, that's, what, that's what we're going to title this podcast. We're going to call it "Intellectual Peasantry." <laughs> no, and it's funny because they say, and then they claim their leaders are now their are now their their guides. You know, like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, who are themselves intellectual peasants. And, and they're not that smart. <laughs> well, well, I like to call them the bards of the intellectual peasantry. Uh, the individuals who are very good at speaking but have lack a lot of substance. So, like you know, Trump is to his base. He can he convinces them with the most vague and stupid words, but he yeah. because he's very confident. And in the same way, you know, uh, and, and maybe that's too insulting to Sam Harris and etc. Because they do speak a little better than Trump does. But there's a lot there's a lack of substance there. They mostly wow people with their with the way that they use their words and they wow people based on sort of the shock factor and making very extreme claims about religion and religious people. Do you have any, and, do you have any examples of that? Like off the top of your head? Well, you know, Sam Harris in particular uh, is very fond of, of a lot of his thought experiments where he likes to, to basically put Muslims in this camp where, you know, if it goes far enough, we're just going to take over the world and kill everyone or, you know, or, you know, if Islamists come into power, which happen to be like the majority of us for some reason, um, same thing with with uh, Ben Shapiro. Like he thinks that the majority of Muslims are radicals. You saw that video. Ben, on yeah. Interview. yeah, I saw uh, that. Because, well. Oh, because no, no, we, no, but, we want we want adults to be punished. So that must mean we're all with ISIS. It's like no. It's like yeah. It's like it's like they lose. They'll be so nuanced about every single topic, mm-hmm. right? When it comes to every topic, but then when it comes to Islam, there's like no nuance. Not even that. I don't give them that much credit. I'm sorry. They're not even nuanced in other subjects. You know, it's funny. They do call for nuance when they're being critiqued. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. When like, they are expressing their own opinions, it's 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 like memery. It's it's just a meme. It's just like, well, this is stupid because you know, fight, fight, really, fight fire with fire. We need to make we need to have like an army of Muslim meme makers. <laughs> well, you know, I don't really want to sink to that level. That's the thing is like because I feel like that's the sort of culture I'm trying to. Yeah, I mean, if that's working with if that's working it's working, the I don't. It's working in a bad way. It's working for those who it, – it's sort of like a, a power play by idiots. So like, you know, so for example, like, you know, mobs, a riot, right? very effective at destroying things. If you get a mob together, a bunch of, you know, idiots with, with pitchforks and, and torches. But that's not exactly the model society you want. <laughs> you know what I mean? Eventually that crumbles. Given like hammers and uh... – uh, tools and stuff, and the, you know, but you know, but that eventually will crumble on itself because it's not sustainable. 
And that's what I'm trying to say is that the sort of knowledge that is promoted on the internet to these days by the majority of people, and even like the explosive movement, it's not sustainable. It's a phase. It'll have a large uh, amount of momentum, but then eventually it's going to fizzle because it's not long lasting. Like people are still going to be re- reading Al Ghazali a hundred years from now. Nobody's going to be reading some idiot ex-Muslim on YouTube or watching his videos one hundred years from. Nobody's going to give a crap about them. Like, yeah, it's, like it's, Army Navabi. Like I'm going to bring up this too because Army Navabi brought up this really funny like meme. For example, got a lot of traction online. Um, going back to the whole simplistic. You know, arguments and stuff. He's like, a, you don't need to read, uh, um, you don't need, read, need to read myths to know that they're nonsense or something. And like he said something about like Harry Potter, I don't know, like some fiction books. You don't need to read Harry Potter to know it's fiction and it's nonsense, right? You don't need to read these things in depth. You need to learn about them to know that they're nonsense. That's basically his argument in a nutshell. And he was arguing against this idea that a lot of Muslims who come back and say, you need a PhD to properly critique the, the subject. So that's his response. And of course, it's stupid because wow. even if something, even if you think something is fiction, right? Say, say, let's let's use the most simple example, like Harry Potter, right? Just because I know Harry Potter's fiction doesn't mean that that I don't have to read it in order to talk about it with authority. Do you see? I'm just like, I need to read Harry Potter to know what's in the book. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you know, I need to know if I come out and just start saying random crap about the book Harry Potter that's not even in the book. And then my justification is, well, I don't need to read it to know it's stupid. Like that, that, that is not a justification for me being ignorant about the subject that I'm talking about. You know, imagine if somebody came up and said about evolution to these people, well, I don't need to read anything on evolution to know it's nonsense. And there's but like, but like for example, I, I learned about evolution in school, but I didn't read the origin of species. Well, yeah, I mean, but but I, know what, but I know what it's about. Authority, right? So for example, if I start saying that, oh, humans come from monkeys, that's what evolution says. And then evolution, or somebody who follows the theory corrects me and says, no, that's not what evolution says about common ancestry. And I go, well, I don't need to learn about evolution to know it's nonsense. That's my response. That looks like a cop-out from my own ignorance. And, of course, they're going to, you know, anybody uh, listening to this podcast, and they're going to say, well, you can't compare evolution to religion and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, that's also nonsensical. That's, that's, uh, that's irrelevant to the objection. The point is, is that regardless of whether you believe in something or not, you need to actually study the thing if you want to properly critique it with any integrity. And the thing that Muslims are complaining about is that the reason that we're saying you need a PhD or you need some academic qualifications is because ex-Muslims in particular, Islamophobes, keep making stupid arguments that have nothing to do with our beliefs. <laughs> you know, that's mm-hmm. the reason why. And if we don't, they don't want us to say that, maybe they need to start learning about the things that they're talking about. Right. But I would say that you have to like study the Quran properly. Yeah. If you have to learn how to if read, you're, if you're trying to make claims about the, about like what's inside of the Quran, but if you're talking about like what's outside of it, like whether it's from God or not, do you, I don't think you necessarily need a PhD in it. Right. Well, the thing is, you have to be somewhat educated to have even a deep discussion about certain things. I mean, what are we talking about in particular? You know, so for example, if you want to talk about thick, like what are the laws pertaining to women or pertaining to to minority rights, et cetera, et cetera, or punishments? Like you can't just you know, oh, it's it. on CNN. So let's now I'm going to go talk to a scholar and try to refute him. It's like that's not how it works. Yeah, People, exactly. That's a, that's the idea that they have in their head. That, you know, this is how it's going to go, that they can just learn everything in a few minutes and then go after somebody who studied the subject for 20 years and just like completely like run over them. Like, no, that's arrogance mixed with 
just a profound amount of stupidity. Um, 100%, 100%. Yeah. Like you can find more terms like that too, like mm-hmm. that have a problem with the tradition. But like, like the point you bring out is a crucial one, I think, uh, where you mention how but there's a whole like usul and fiqh, right? Where you derive the laws, you derive the rulings. So to critique even one ruling, you need to know how they got to that conclusion before you just critique it. Yeah, and it's fine if you want to reject something based on a simplistic understanding. Like, say, if you, like, I reject Christianity based on certain theological issues. Yeah. But on those issues is what I will argue. Only those issues. I won't go after everything else in Christianity not having learned about it. And I definitely won't go marching up to the Vatican and try to argue with the Pope. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know. Oh, I, I know more than you, Mister Pope, about everything that I'm talking about. You're like, no, I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not stupid. You know. Um, now, there's a point, you know, that I will come from where I'm saying, like, you know, I don't believe the Trinity is correct because I think it's it's theologically invalid. I think that there are some logical inconsistencies there, and I do feel that it's incoherent. And and on that level, I can disagree with him. But if if I'm going to go in and be like, yeah, you know, Christianity's views on women when I haven't studied the subject, right, in depth. But this is how a lot of these people act. They'll go, look, well, let me go look up something that confirms my bias. Go read a Wikipedia article for five minutes, and then they try to go after people who have PhDs in the subject. They're idiots. Yeah, right. I, I agree with that. Like, and you, and you you even see it with yourself, right, with people checking out of debates with you most of the time. It's happened a few times. Um, you know, and it's actually kind of made me mad because um, partly it confirms a lot about these people, but I wish I had a larger base so that it could be sort of marketed that these people are cowards. Unfortunately, I don't, so it's easy for them to run away and kind of have this sort of, you know, not really noticed. But, you know, when, I, when I've when i gone after Robert Spencer and David Floyd and they've reneged on debates with me, and Brother Fahad, you're very much aware of what happened with Robert Spencer. I'm hoping to release that video pretty soon, by the way. It's been a long time, but, um, you know, it, the moment that they learn that I know more than they do, and I'm very proud to say that I don't care because it's true. Um, it's probably everything I want, but I've educated myself. I humbled myself for several years at a university. I have a right to say that, and if they don't like it, they can kiss my ass. Uh, you know, so, I'm sorry, excuse my friend. <laughs> you know, but my point is, is that, you know, these individuals are so arrogant that they're willing to talk down to me and other people who have studied more than they have. And when challenged on an academic, a fair academic platform, they make so many excuses Mm. just to back out of it. Um, You know, the fact that Robert Spencer, for example, and this is one of the biggest insults I've ever had in my life and it was expected, but it was still insulting. You remember we offered him a fair platform at OSU at Ohio State University, one of the largest universities in the country, okay, security, free security, travel, everything, everything he complains about not getting, because he always complains on Twitter that nobody wants to invite him to the universities. They're trying to censor him. We invite him, give him a red carpet. What happens? He claims that we're a security risk. <laughs> he claims that the MSA, the students at OSU, Muslim students are a security risk for him. Then he, uh, the main thing is that he asked for like $20,000. $20,000 for his own personal security, which you don't even need for personal security, to protect himself from all these evil possible terrorists in the MSA. Yeah, but the, the guy, he's had a, a assassination attempt on him once, he claims. 
in Iceland, which is not even true. It was about some stupid thing with like some guy put ecstasy in his drink, and then <laughs> trying to get him like trying to get him to party. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, he was a. Uh, I think it was in where was it Texas or somewhere. He had like some draw Muhammad Day thing, and these two lone wolf idiots went and tried to kill him, and then the FBI basically took him down. You know, so nothing actually happened. They shot at the building, or whatever, but nobody got hurt. Uh, no, well, that's that's a pretty big thing, though. It is a big thing, but think about it. Was that a university? Was there a security everywhere? Was it like you know? I mean, look. Why the heck would we invite and spend money on a guy to come in just so we could kill him? Like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to waste my time. You know, I'm not there. I want him to be alive. I want to embarrass him in front of people. I don't want to kill him. I'm not going to waste yes. my precious life going to jail for some idiot like him. I mean, no, okay, don't, don't flatter yourself, Robert. Okay, I, I have more important things to do with my time than worry about your life. All right, seriously. And this is the thing that he doesn't get. He wants to make, this is an excuse, like I said. And let's look at it from a principle, like the matter of principle, Okay. If you were anything like a man, okay, you wouldn't require $20,000 for your convictions. If you had any semblance of testicles, okay, you wouldn't sit here and claim that you need security so you can speak about your beliefs in an intellectual manner on an intellectual platform at a university. If you're not willing to die for your free speech and expression or even, you know, somebody yelling at you or something, then I'm sorry. You don't have convictions. You don't deserve to have convictions. And you may as well just go cower somewhere else and never speak again. Because, you know, for me, like you're you're not worth you're not worth your words. And maybe that's a hard thing to ask for a lot of people like, you know, they don't want to risk their lives and stuff. But like I said, for somebody to come out and say he's brave and that he's trying to help Western civilization, he's fighting for free speech and everything and free expression. Yeah. Oh, crap. Like, no, he's not. He's fighting for himself. He's posturing, and, you know, he's just a little weasel. No, it's true. I mean, he can come out and he can say, oh, the Muslims are being mean to me. It's like, well, you deserve it. You don't deserve respect when you don't have any dignity for yourself or anybody else. Like, and that's, and that's, and I'm sorry to go on a rant about him, but, you know, it, it does, it infuriates me that people think these sort of people are brave and not have anything intellectual to offer when they have zero integrity and they can't even they don't even have enough courage to stand up on a fair platform at a university uh, to debate their ideas. He has to go scurry away in some church with private security because, you know, he thinks he's in such danger. <laughs> Pathetic. And I'm sorry if, I, if that was too much. But, you know, for me, it's just it's really I agree with you 100 <laughs> percent. I'm like, I'm being blunt because and I'm sorry if you know if I'm using certain words, but you know, I, I want to be very frank here that you know these people, anyone who looks up to these individuals has no integrity, has no principle. They don't they're not an ethical person, um, as far as I'm concerned. I have never asked for a fee speaking out against ISIS when I was overseas. Okay, when when they called me to go give speeches at, at universities or places where there were actually ISIS members in the crowd and who wanted to kill me, I didn't go, hey, I need $20,000 for you guys to give me security before I go there. Wait, wait, is that confirmed that there were ISIS members in the crowd where you were speaking at in Malaysia? There were some members who were watching me, yes, and I got threatened personally by a few of them. So, how did, Wait, how did they threaten you? To my face. Wait, what? Did they, they were like... Yeah, we're gonna kill you. Shut up, or we're gonna. Or you're gonna no, die. Well, first off, like it was kind of like it was very subtle. 
So first off, they were basically like, I don't think you should speak, brother, because, you know, it's a very sensitive subject. And I tried to explain to them that, no, it needs to be said. And then, uh, you know, that conversation eventually blew up to the extent where it was like, if you talk, you know, you're going to find yourself dead. And so, huh? yeah, I mean, it was more graphic than, than that. Um, like one guy basically said, you know, I will call I will saw your head off. <laughs> so, and, uh, I, I kind of like, I kind of like stood up to him and, and he just shouted and kind of backed off with his friends, but you can tell who was who. Wait, how many, how many people were there? Can you, can you describe this incident a little bit? More? It was a group of like four people. So I mean, where were they from? They're Syrians. Oh, snap. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> so, you know, what are, they, what are they doing in Malaysia? Studying. What? Studying really? at the university. Oh, damn. So, no, I mean, they got rooted out eventually. Uh, you know, when the crackdown happened in Malaysia, those those individuals were arrested and deported. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, there were there were members of Like, What I'm trying to say is that, look, I don't think I'm going to do much. Yes, our lives are important, our family's lives are important, but if you're coming out here and you're trying to act like you're a brave man and you're trying to fight for free spirit, you know, free expression and free speech in the face of danger, in the face of violence, and you're trying to promote you know, all of these things, and you're trying to be like this idol for people, and then you come out and you're like, I can't go over there because they're going to kill me. It's like, you know, you, you look like a complete clown. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Like, 100%. Yeah, like you have to, you have to put your... You have to put your skin in the game if you're really, like... Yeah, it's like, what? imagine if Martin Luther King was like, yeah, I'm fighting for civil rights, and I'm willing to die, but, you know, I need bodyguards around me 24-7 just in case, and I can't speak in public because I'm worried. You know, like, no, that, that would have never worked. I was listening to this podcast yesterday by Quintus Curtius about the difference between recklessness and courage. Hmm. So I think he thought that, like... I think that Robert Spencer would think that going to this uh, debate would be reckless. Reckless and rather than being courage. Reckless, like his life, you know, he has no he's evidence. Putting his life, he's putting his life on the line for no reason whatsoever. There's no evidence that he was even putting his life on the line to begin with. He's just appealing to the the uh, prejudice of common of his community. You know, it's very easy. This is this is a very easy way of getting out of debate for a lot of explicit Islamophobes. Oh yeah, I'm willing to debate with you, but you might be a terrorist. <laughs> yeah. It helps them to continue like continue promoting this narrative that we're all dangerous while at the same time, you know, on the other side of their mouth, they're denying the fact that they hate all Muslims or they think all Muslims are dangerous people. So you might be a terrorist, so I can't risk my life. But yes, I am willing to speak, but I can't speak to you. You see, mm-hmm. so then they can ne- they don't ever have to debate anyone, right? Because they can always yeah. keep appealing to that prejudice of the society. Oh, yeah, he's right. Yeah, those Muslims might be dangerous. <laughs> so Abdullah Al Andalusi, my cousin, had a very similar situation happen. He was about to debate an atheist. They had this plan for weeks. Okay, he gets to the venue. Guy calls out, says, "I'm worried about security." Of course, Back to the debate. Okay, all his followers were like, "Yeah, we understand. You know, he might you might have been killed by those evil Muslims in the audience who wanted to blow you up because you're you're preaching out against their ideas." <laughs> See, it helps to further that stereotype, that negative stereotype, while at the same time, 
giving off this veneer that you're still being intellectually honest and you're willing to have discussion with people. Right? Saves your skin while at the same time it helps you to continue demonizing the people that you're attacking. Yeah, it's just excuses. And no, it's like, it's like even these so-called, a lot of the non-Muslim, like, so-called free thinkers and, like, classical liberals, they'll never invite... They'll never invite a traditional Muslim on their show, right? Oh, no. like you see Dave Rubin or Joe Rogan, right? He's always like, oh, I'm open-minded, this and that. Who does he invite about Islam? Like, imagine the yeah, Yo, didn't he bring for Firaz Zahabi? Okay, that's like one most, That's one example of like uh, a practicing Muslim, but that, that's not what they talked about. That was not the main topic. But Dave, right? okay, so Dave Rubin, I actually messaged him. I gave him one. I said, because he's had uh, people on his show. Imam, Imam Tawhidi does not count as... Uh, he had Imam Tawhidi on there, who does... Yeah, he had all these, he's had all these ex-Muslims on there, and I came on there and I said, hey, I'm studying this and this, and I'd love to have a discussion with you, why don't you... Never got back to me. He's never had one, and he will never will. You'll never yeah. see these people go on there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all about that follower count, isn't it? Well, no, it's not even about follower count, because... I mean, to be recognized by these guys, right? No, there's many, there's many examples of like bigger Muslims. Like, let's use this as an example. Let's use Hamza Yusuf, right? Why don't they talk to him? No, Yasser Khadi. Yasser Khadi. Yeah, like exactly. It's not about follower count. It's they only they're liars, right? They're not open to discussion. They're only like they only talk strategy. to people that agree with. If you think about it, even though there's lack of integrity there, it's a good strategy because you see what they're doing is actually they're saturating their own market with a particular viewpoint. If they bring in a counter one. And they actually show balance; it'll undermine what they're trying to do. See, their whole purpose, whether you, whether they want to admit it or not, is to show that there isn't an intellectual response from our side. It's yes, exactly. Our, yeah. Is that we're barbarians? That we're stupid, underdeveloped people who can't give any sort of response? That the only thing that we will do is try to kill you if you disagree with us. But if we came on a show, say you bring an intellectual Muslim who studied right onto their show and debating with them, then it destroys that narrative because it shows that yes. We do want to have discussion. Yes, we can have discussion. Yes, we are intelligent. And that's not what their followers want to see. And that's not the, the narrative they want to promote. So even just going, like, say they invited me. And I'm not saying I'm the best. I'm saying, like, Yasser are Claudia and others are better. But let's say they invited me or, or somebody else. And I go on there. Um, without me even having to say anything, I've already won the discussion. Because I've destroyed the narrative that they're trying to promote. Yeah. That, they don't want that. That's bad marketing for them. Right, yeah, they don't want a guy that went to Malaysia, studied the religion, academic. No, they, they don't. They don't want a guy in general there because as soon as you bring on a guy, you like as as Asadullah said, you ruin the narrative. And the narrative is that all these Muslims they don't want to talk. But as soon as you bring one on, that just proves that oh, they do want to talk. Yeah, and they don't. They can't have that because all the ex-Muslims they bring on there are like, yeah, we're so in danger. You know, because we can't have these discussions like we're having right now. This is civilization. We're having really good intellectual discourse, but you can never have this with a Muslim person. That's what they always say. Do you see? Do you hear that every time yeah, they have the they're, they're exactly. So if they if they brought somebody on, it would completely undermine everything. hundred percent. Like they're like this just shows you their intentions are not trying to find the truth. They're explore different viewpoints or build bridges. They don't want to do that. Of course not. Right. Like, this is why we have to attack them from the outside, you know, by, by trying to critique them from the outside, and they don't try to give us any like any um, uh, publicity. Or if they do give us publicity, like what they'll do is they'll try to quote mine us and try to make us up look like to be terrorists or radicals or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like look what they did to Daniel. Yeah. 
Wait, what did he do, Daniel? Daniel? So when they had him on, like when Army Navabi. Oh yeah, the debate with interviewing. Uh, bro, that wasn't debate. a debate. Oh my god, with Imam Tabi, whatever it is, right? The whole point of that, dis- or even when the secular jihadists, like when they had me on, or when they had Daniel on, they were trying to throw us into a corner. And one of the reasons they'll never invite me back to their show is because I refuse to be put in that corner. Um, you know, I don't know if you noticed this discussion, but uh, if you saw that discussion, what they were trying to do is like, I came prepared, and so the whole topic was about. Is terrorism, you know, is Islamic terrorism actually Islamic? That was a whole discussion. And I brought on, like, studies. I had, like, papers and books next to me. I had, like, a whole list of references ready to go, you know, with all these psychological... You excited books. and, like... Put, and I was like, let's go, let's go. And in the middle of the discussion, I brought it up. I said, look, I have all these studies if you want to talk about them. All the evidence that goes against your theory. And do you know what happened? I kid you not. They're like, no, 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 let's 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 go on to something else. Mm. I'm not joking. That's exactly what was said to me. Wow. I need to go watch this. No, if you go watch that, I mean, I'm, I might upload it on my channel eventually. I'm still doing some editing because the audio is pretty bad. But they have it on their own channel. That literally happened. That literally happened. The, the very thing they called me to come on discussing, they mm. changed the subject in the middle of the discussion when I decided to say, oh, yeah, I want to bring in this academic evidence. I have all this stuff waiting here. Let's let's talk about it. Like, no, 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 let's just have a talk. And then he switched it to, like, something like about Hellfire or something. I was like, what does this have to do with, you know, the, the yeah. talk? Yeah, what a pussy move. <laughs> you, asked me to, you asked me to rant. This is me ranting. I don't even know yeah. what I'm talking about anymore. No, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. You want to go to the, the – we have actually two more questions. Okay. Should we, can I ask those? So you studied uh, Western philosophy, right, as well as Islamic studies, yeah. right? So, I mean, you, you didn't just study Western philosophy and you, you hated it all the time. You, you probably enjoyed some parts of it. I enjoyed you, you found some parts of it useful, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, enjoyed, I, enjoyed the, uh, I enjoyed the exercise of my brain, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> what ideas do you think are, like, the most useful or which ideas did you enjoy the most? Pragmatism, pragmatism. Yeah, I mean, pra- I'm, I'm, yes, I am. I mean, obviously, you guys know this. So, but, but what's I, a pragmatism? What is it? I you need to explain this to Amar because Amar doesn't get um, it. Which is the American school of philosophy? Uh, the primary American school of philosophy is called pragmatism. It was developed primarily in the Americas. Now, actually, let me correct that because even um, William James would disagree with that with that notion. Um, although the formal school known as pragmatism was developed in the Americas, primarily North America, um, pragmatism as a philosophy itself has existed for quite some time. And William James even said that himself, that it's just a, a name for something old, an old mm-hmm. way of thinking. And pragmatism is basically, very simply put, it's believing in things or believing in, in ideas and things because they work. And because what is that by workability? Workability for... A pragmatist is basically how does it cohere with your other experiences and your understanding of the world, and how well does it uh, make sense of everything else? That's basically it. It's not okay. based on any sort of direct validity, like like say concordance. Like I have to see something in order to verify that existence of that thing. Uh, it has a lot to do more with whether, like your brain is a puzzle basically, or your way of looking at the world is like a puzzle. Okay, you have mm-hmm. bits and pieces of imagery. 
right? Mm -hmm. So what a pragmatist will do is is say, okay, well, how's the best way? What's the best way of getting a full picture here? That yeah. makes sense of the data that I have. Okay. I mean, continue, continue. So that's what a pragmatist will do. They'll develop theories on the basis of how well they can organize and make things coherent in their brain and whether that theory is workable towards doing what, what is what does workable mean like workable means being able to make things coherent uh it also can pertain to predictions um whether things will come true as a result uh or whether a prediction comes through as a result of the theory that you've chosen um it can also mean whether or not it works in the sense that your life is benefited. Okay. Like you as a person feel complete or feel whole or feel like everything makes sense around you. Like, mm -hmm. can it explain things? Can the theories that you've chosen, the beliefs that you've chosen, explain your experiences in a good way without any contradictions, without any um, opposition or significant opposition? Um, if your theory doesn't work, it means that another, what it means is like, if a theory is weak, say another theory comes along that explains things better, that means that that works better mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. the one that you've adopted. That's what pragmatism is. It's not about whether you can empirically verify or whether you can necessarily logically, everything has to be logically uh, verified or something, right? It's, it's all about, it's actually can incorporate both empiricism and rationalism within its sphere. Can you give example, some examples of... Uh... Yeah, yeah. I just want to ask, before like the examples, like, I guess this would be an example. Like, Say you're a Christian and you're a pragmatist, and say you're a Muslim and a pragmatist. How, how, does, how, like, how does that person operate on their beliefs, and how would, how would the Muslim convince the Christian to become Muslim in light of pragmatism? This is, the pragmatists, this is how pragmatists resolve the issue of, of differing beliefs. Say okay. a Christian meets the Muslim, and they're both pragmatists. Okay, and they both have their own paradigms, right? Now, the Muslim will bring up something about his beliefs, and the Christian will bring up something he beliefs. Now, there's the contention. Then they right. both believe in one God, so that's fine. But then they get to the whole Trinity thing. And now right, they're yeah. like, crap. Okay, so like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. So now they both experience an anomaly. Um, the Christian has experienced an anomaly in that the Muslim believes that God is not three people. Just right. And then the Muslim has experienced an anomaly because the Christian is saying, well, there are three persons in one. And mm. Jesus is God, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to look through their beliefs, their paradigms, individual paradigms, and determine whether or not those particular anomalies can fit within the paradigm. Now, they both probably come to the conclusion that, no, that's not the case. So if something is wrong, either I'm wrong, the Muslim, either one person is wrong, or the other, the person they're speaking to is wrong. Right. So now, how do we determine which is right. That's when we start looking at the coherence of both paradigms uh, and whether or not um, the experiences of each individual, both in religious experience, both in scriptural experience, etc., conforms uh, better to their theories. So how do, that's very vague. So let me give you an example. So let's look at internal co coherency. The Muslim challenges the Christian and says, okay, so you say God is one, but the three persons, right? How does that work? And the Christian explains it. But for the Muslim, his, his view is actually more simple. It's like, well, we don't have three people. We have one person or one, there's one being, right? So that's a much more simple explanation. Why is your more complex explanation preferable to mine? 
And that would be the first question that should be asked by the Muslim. Why is that preferable? Mm-hmm. Now, whether the Christian can rationalize it or not will determine how much they've thought about their beliefs. Um, but that's actually a very important question. Why is it preferable? And that's something that many people don't ask when they have disagreements. Why is your theory preferable to my theory? Now, the pragmatist would say, one, mine's more simple. Two, yours is more confusing. Mm-hmm. That's a problem for a pragmatist. But how is this, okay, uh, not trouble, how is this different than something logical? Because the three-in-one thing, just logically, it doesn't make sense. You can, kind of, you can kind of, if you use like Aristotelian metaphysics, or actually Neoplatonism, you can actually rationalize the three-in-one. You got to define these things as you go along. So substance and essence. So like, I'm sorry, so the accidents and the essence. So so they consider the persons to be accidents or or, or attributes, not attributes, but like basically the essence is one thing. Mm-hmm. So there's one God in essence, but he's three persons right. in that essence. Yeah, that's, yeah. They'll have some sort of rationalization. They'll rationalize it that way. So for a pragmatist, first thing would be like, okay, which of these is more simple and which one is too convoluted? That's one criteria. Now, it doesn't always pass, right? So sometimes things can be very complex. So what's the next step? Okay, well, as a pragmatist, it should be internally consistent with my other beliefs. So one mm-hmm. thing Christianity has a problem with is, the immut- so first off, Christians believe that God is immutable, perfect. And perfection includes the idea that one cannot lose something, one cannot become decreased. Mm-hmm. You know, th- that thing is, is as it is and always will be. Cannot change. It's, it's like without example, God, like you can't give up anything. You can't do anything, right? Mm-hmm. The other problem, though, Christianity has is also something else essential to his doctrine, which is the concept that God sacrificed something. Now, sacrifice implies a loss. Right. You have to give something up of yourself. Right. But God can't lose anything. Because then if he was able to lose anything, he would not be God. Yeah. So according to their own definition. So there's an internal inconsistency that now Christians can respond and say, well, you know, he didn't really give up something because, he, yeah. you know, he didn't really sacrifice. That's just a word he used for us. It's like, well, if he didn't really sacrifice something, then what was the significance of the sacrifice? Right. You see well, what, yeah, well, what sort of words a pragmatist yeah. would ask? It gets to the what was the significance of the sacrifice? It's not, it's not, is it logically necessary or can it be empirically verified? No, I'm asking what's the consequence Mm-hmm. of your ideas is it consistent with your other beliefs what's the significance compared to my belief does that really is that preferable mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what a pragmatist would ask and that's actually the, for a pragmatist that's the most important qualities of a belief are its consequences are its benefits are whether or not it's coherent with your other viewpoints is whether or not it's a better explanation is whether or not it's more simple or too complex. Okay, so the more simple part, the simple, the simple part is that is that an inherent trait of all pragmatists, regardless of theology. Um, that would be one. So I guess you could call it one axiom. Yeah, is whether or not it's not necessarily that the more simple theology is the better one. Is as whether or not the more simple ex, is whether the more simple explanation can explain the thing still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, because you can have two theological positions and one's more complex than the other, but if they don't explain the same things, then it's it's pointless to compare their complexity mm-hmm. or their simplicity to each other. But if we have the concept of like one God, 
and one theology that has a better or more simple understanding of that that explains it in just as, like in just the same way, mm-hmm. but without all of the convoluted nonsense that's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Then you know it's more preferable explanation. It shows that the theory is more um, uh, efficient. So, for mm-hmm. example, Occam's razor is a pragmatist principle, which is which is basically the most sim- more simpler explanation is the more uh, logical one, one. or right. is, is the correct one, or the one right. we go with. Right. We don't say correct. Right. We say this more. Yeah, we don't, it's more useful. Right. Okay. So, like in this case, as a pragmatist, I was the most. I'd say, well, our theology is the most simple one. Yeah, it, it explains, explains everything right. that you just said, but without all the added crap. <laughs> like, right. you know, like, yeah. And yeah. Next, like it would be. Like, and our theology is consistent with our other beliefs, whereas yours causes a lot of problems. Right. Like the dying, dying for the sins. Like, but oh, yeah, not even just that sacrifice, but also dying. Like, okay, so what happened? So, if Jesus died. He's a third person of the Trinity. Then you're telling me God changed because then it, only be, it dropped down to two people in three days. Oh, yeah. No, but wait a minute. No, no, no. He didn't really die. Just his body died. Okay, well, then how did he die? His human yeah. body died. Okay, well, for God, that's nothing. Like, what did, what did, he, what did he give up? Like, mm-hmm. he gave up a shell of himself. That's not a big deal. Like, do you think God would be affected by that what about like in um how has pragmatism been used in science oh no, hold on are you, you you want to continue with this no i wanted him to well, i was gonna fix the pragmatist perspective like you know the whole thing like you in, in the contemporary world we have issues with you know uh gender roles very contentious issue you know women and men should be equal in everything that they do and say of course, human society has not functioned like that ever. Yeah, so you'd ask why. And there are biological differences between men and women that are very obvious. I mean, that's yeah. not to say that women and men should abuse each other, obviously not. But there are certain roles that men and women are suited for. And Islamic ethos accounts for that and, and promotes that very natural position, uh, whereas you know other beliefs don't. So, I mean, which one really is more in conformity with the human experience and, 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 and more natural to the human experience than, than others? You know, these are things that, that the pragmatist would ask. It's not necessarily, oh, is it true? Because truth to a pragmatist is really is not some absolute thing. I know it's, it's not like whatever I want. It's like, um, have you ever seen like the Avengers, like the newest one? Yeah, I've seen them all. There's a, <laughs> this is one meme in it that says, like, truth is whatever I want it to be. Thanos says that. That's not really. Is that what private like? Because some some people would have that kind of misconception about pragmatism. Is that like, oh, if it's yeah. more useful or if it's something that I that's even uh, that I like. That's a nihilist position because nihilists would say there's no objective meaning, there's no absolute meaning or purpose to the universe. We make our own meaning and purpose. That's but isn't that isn't that kind of what a pragmatist would? No, that's not like. what a pragmatist would say. Basically, whatever works the best is closest to the truth that you can get. The pragmatist would also say that you don't know 100% of everything, so you can't have absolute knowledge of the subject matter. You know, so whatever's what is true to a pragmatist is what is the best, what is the most, the best working model. But at the same time, they wouldn't say, a pragmatist would not say that is absolutely the case. Like, there's always room for error. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, in terms of methodology, not in terms of belief, because, you know, when you actually believe something, um, you can't uh, doubt. 
You can't. Well, yeah, you can't. Well, you, well, you don't. It's it's kind of actually unnatural to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like I, I'll, I'll give you. A, can I give a really good example of like why you should be a pragmatist? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So say you, you know you can't prove that you're not in the matrix, right? Yeah, I think it's another metaphysical example I gave you. Was it? Was this? Was this the example you gave me? I'll tell it. Okay, then you can. You, yeah, you can tell it then. So you can't prove that you're in the matrix. Yeah, it's true. You can't prove that you're in some computer simulation. If somebody come up to you and said, "Yeah, bro, we're in the matrix," right? Well, but you can't prove that you're not in it. You too. First off, what is the default here? Um, the way that we come to doubt things is based on whether or not we've experienced an anomaly in our ba- in our daily and basic experiences. So if I walk outside, and I use this example a lot, if I walk outside right now and I look outside and I see my tree, I have a bunch of trees outside. So if I look at my apple tree, my front yard, okay, I don't go out every morning and go, is that really an apple tree? You know, I've just already, I assume that's an apple tree because that's what I've seen. And I'm just going to continue assuming it's an apple tree until something changes in my experience that makes me doubt that. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, according to the skeptic or somebody who constantly requires empirical or rational validity for everything, they're going to go, well, to be consistent, they have to, every time they experience an object, they have to actually utilize their methodology in order to verify that that thing actually is the case. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, a pragmatist says that's nonsense. I'm not going to do that because I need to live. (laughs) Like, I can't walk out every day and doubt whether or not I'm in reality because I wouldn't be able to function. You know, I have to take a lot of things for granted in order for me to even have knowledge of the world. Right. I have to believe that I'm in reality, that I'm, that I'm experienced, that what I'm experiencing is actually there in order for me to even move forward. If I'm constantly doubting everything and I have to require justification for everything that I see or, or, or immediately, you know, in my immediate purview, then I'll never get anywhere. I won't. I won't be able to. I won't be able to take the first step. So practice says, "The hell with all of that." <laughs> you know, basically take things for granted as long as they work, and until they don't work, then you have an issue to resolve. Okay. What was pragmatism well, in response of? No, wait, wait, as long as they work, right? Like, what is it like? As long as they work with your reality and perception of life. Like, for example, if you're a Christian, right, and you've never experienced another religion in your life, there's no reason for you to go, oh, is my Christianity, you know, is there something uh, wrong with it? You don't know there's an alternative. You've never experienced an alternative. Right. right? Until you experience that alternative, and you, until you experience an anomaly in your faith, then you start thinking about which one works the most in, in, in understanding my world. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, the most coherent explanation that you have is the one that you should adopt because that's the only one you can adopt. You see what I'm saying? The pragmatist breaks everything down in simple way like that. Like basically you only, you adopt what you can and what you should uh, based on the resources, the intellectual resources or the, 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 the amount of data that you have at your disposal. So whatever makes sense to my little brain, um, I should consider that to be true for all intents and purposes. Think about it though. Is there any other way to go about it? No. I mean, if you really think about it, you know, you really don't have a choice in that matter. Whatever you've experienced or what your mind is already used to uh, understanding about things is really all you have. That's the only tool set. You can't you can't import tools that you've never seen or don't have any knowledge of. Right. 
And even in the event that you have other tools around, you're just like, we live in the information age, so we can look online and see a lot of things, go to the library, et cetera. You have to look at those tools and compare them. You see, which, which of these um, is more reliable for me? And there's a comparison and contrast that occurs between those, 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 those things and those events. But this idea that you, everything you come across, every experience you have to doubt or you have to validate, validate based on some other methodology, to a pragmatist, that's just that's like that makes you a dysfunctional human being, and that's not actually how people act or behave at all. No, it's not. Yeah, there's people, so many things you can't empirically prove that you accept. It's not even, even rationally. It's like, look, dude, if I'm walking outside and things are working, you know, mm-hmm. as long as I'm not like hallucinating, you know, I'm not seeing like pink elephants flying across the sky, things are okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like the structures that we live in, even the cultural structures, the religious structures, government structures that we live in, if we don't have any knowledge of anything else that works better than that, you really, you really don't have any justification for doubting it or even going against it. And even in the event that something does come and challenges that, if that thing is not good enough at explaining that information or that data or that experience or those experiences, then you have no reason to, to, to leave your other faith. What ex-Muslims, a lot of people do is that they see an alternative and they just jump over immediately mm-hmm. without even questioning whether or not the other one is sustainable or adequately right. actually addresses their concerns. You know, one of the things that you see a lot of when, they, when they, a lot of Muslims fall to atheism, they have a terrible time explaining morality. They love to complain about so many things. But then if well, you yeah, actually explain moral principles, they're like, well, it's all subjective. It's like, well, what the hell are you talking well, about? <laughs> like, why do you... Yeah, they, they claim there's no objective standard for morality, but then they moralize anyways. Yeah, they act like there is. Yeah. But the other thing a pragmatist they, does, and I didn't mention, is that pragmatists are very much about actions. Mm-hmm. Your beliefs and your actions correspond, should correspond with each other. I mean, it doesn't actually mean that you're a non-believer if you don't act a certain way, but if you act consistently opposed to what you actually say, then there's a then you don't actually believe that thing. Mm-hmm. So whenever I come across people who constantly moralize and constantly bash Islamic ethics, yet at the same time claim that there's no real meaning, purpose, or behind anything that they're talking about, then what comes to my mind is that you don't actually believe that. That makes mm-hmm. no sense for no. you to complain. Like, why, why does the pragmatist value that? Value what? Action? Value value uh, consistency between thoughts and actions. And why, why is this significant? Because for something to work, it has to manifest itself in some way. So workability in terms of coherence means just consistency. That means that it doesn't contradict your other beliefs and that it, it easily organizes data and information. Workability also applies to the physical manifestations. You know, if you're if you a moral a moral claim requires a moral action by necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, one of the reasons that I was bashing Robert Spencer earlier is because he doesn't act in accordance with his principles. He's not congruent with his principles. No, he's he's very much a coward, and he doesn't actually believe in the things he claims. He's posturing. I, I still don't see why why it's yeah, important like, to a pragmatist. For yeah, them. like as a Muslim, if you commit a sin, aren't you contradicting like your principles? Okay, so let me put it this way: if you claim to me. Here's what a pragmatist says, and I think this is very easy to understand. If you say that prayer is required is required for you to be a Muslim, yes, and you refuse to pray, uh, yes. okay. That so why, why is that important to a pragmatist? 
it shows an inconsistency between one's actions and, and beliefs. Right. Refusing to pray is different from for, like forgetting. Yeah. Okay. Or like, yeah. So then we, we, a private will say, you don't actually believe that. Well, they have a justification because then it shows that your theory is not working. It's right. not making you do anything that you claim that you need to do. So why should a Muslim be a pragmatist? Or why should they not be? Well, no, wait, uh, why should a person be a pragmatist? Let's put it that way. In general? Yeah, in general. Like, cause I mean, well, the what's the alternative, right? Because a pragmatism, yeah. and, and one of the, excuse me, I'm going to get up real quick here. For pragmatists, um, one of the beauties of pragmatism is that is what we call a, a meta methodology or meta theory in many respects because it actually is it, it can incorporate so many different methods under one umbrella. A pragmatist can also be an empiricist and a rational. Basically, a pragmatist can be an empiricist and a rationalist at the same time. They can be everything at the same time because what they're looking for is not necessarily um, whether you can see it or whether it makes no, sense not to the brain. For the perception. What they're looking for is what works toward yeah. achieving a particular goal of coherency and organization. So at any given time, that's why some people are confused about what I believe in sometimes because sometimes I'll adopt empirical methodologies for, say, scientific claims. But other claims, I'll, I'll adopt only purely logical, rational methods. Yeah. They go, well, how can you do that? And I go, because I'm a pragmatist. I, I choose whatever the heck I want. I think it works. Or whatever it's, yeah, whatever works, whatever is the most coherent. Whatever helps. to work. And, they, and they say, well, doesn't that contradict? No, it doesn't actually, because I just demarcate between which method is necessary for when and for what. Yeah. I'll give you an example. You know, like black, like, uh, what's well, it called? Well, dark well, matter? Yeah. Or, you, want, you want to continue? So I was going to say, like, it's the same with having a toolkit. Yeah. I'm not going to use a hammer for everything. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. I was going to say, like, uh, <laughs> you know, dark matter? Yeah. So... There's no empirical verification for dark matter. Like no, like no one's seen it, no one's experienced it, no one's measured it. But the only reason why we think it is it exists out there is because, um, because the physics tells us so. Like our our mind is predicting that, our, our mind, our math, our physics is predicting that uh, dark matter is eventually going to exist, or like it's going to like we're gonna ever we're gonna experience it at one point. <laughs> Okay, so our mind, with a, from the practice perspective, our mind predicts it or experiences it through the knowledge of physics. Is that yeah, why it, so it doesn't experience it, but like saying that dark matter. matter does exist is the most pragmatic explanation for what we have. Does that make sense? So, do you mind if I just explain something that? Uh... Yeah, let's let's have Asadullah. He's explaining. He's the expert. So, sorry, Bob. <laughs> Okay, so William James is, is in lecture three of his book. Uh-huh. He's trying to explain pragmatism and its worth in terms of like theology. And this is just one um, quote among many. So it's just a few paragraphs. It won't be too long. Though. So he's talking about free will at first, and it's really interesting. He says, uh, free will thus has no meaning unless it be a doctrine of relief. As such, it takes its place with other religious doctrines. Between them, they build up the old waste and repair the former desolations. Our spirit, shut within this courtyard of sense experience, is always saying to the intellect upon the tower, Watchmen, tell us of the night, if it is aught of promise bear. And the intellect gives it then these terms of promise. Other than this practical significance, the words God, free will, design, etc. have none, have zero significance, outside of their practicality for the human experience. 
He says, yet dark though they be in themselves, meaning though their definitions have no meaning by themselves or intellectual, uh, intellectually eh, taken, when we bear them into life's thicket with us, the darkness there grows light upon us. If you stop in dealing with such words with their definition alone, thinking that to be an uh, intellectual finality, where are you? He goes on to say, it means less than nothing in its pompous robe of adjectives. Pragmatism alone can read a positive meaning into these words, and for that, she turns her back upon the intellectualist point of view altogether. God's in, the, in, his, uh, in his heaven, all's right with the world. That's the real heart of your theology, and for that, you need no rationalist definitions. Uh, he goes on to say, why shouldn't all of us, rationalists as well as pragmatists, confess this? Pragmatism, so far from keeping her eyes bent on the immediate practical foreground, as she is accused of doing, dwells just as much upon the world's remotest perspectives. And then finally he says, um, the real vital question for us all is this. What is this world going to be? What is life eventually to make of itself? The center of gravity of philosophy must therefore alter its place. The earth of things long thrown into shadow by the glories of the upper ether must resume its rights, etc. He goes into very poetic prose here. But essentially what he's trying to say is like, you talk about all these abstractions, right? You Uh talk about what God is, what free will is, all these things, right? But unless it has any relevance to my actual lived experience, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It means nothing. Right. Yep. So when we talk about God, for example, in Islam, do we just talk about God in his attributes? What it mean is the abstract sense, or do we talk about his attributes and how they're relevant to us? How they're relevant to us, right? Exactly. Right. Right, because yeah. we can't talk about them any other way. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't mind. Basically, you can't be a pure empiricist or a pure rationalist. Okay, I kind of get it. Most people unknowingly already behave as pragmatists. Yes, that's why he considers it the natural way of thinking. Yeah, we always think about what works for us in our minds and in our lives. We don't think about what's right or what's true in the abstract, objective sense that it's removed from ourselves. Mm. We never do. Is this basically yeah. the philosophy of like the our uncles, like our communities? Our uncles? Uncles. Well, Ibn Taymiyyah was a very well-known pragmatist. How so? Uh, one of the reasons that he backed the idea that God exists is because uh, human beings are naturally inclined to it, and that to do yeah. otherwise would be to make them confused. Mm. Yeah, that was basically his whole rationale behind the. Fitzgerald. Yeah, the Fitzgerald, the Fitzgerald tells you. <laughs> Well, he didn't say the there. He said he made a consequentialist argument. He said to deny the fitra is to put man in confusion, and to put man in confusion is to lose sight of himself in the world. Yeah, that was his. That was his justification. Like that was literally the reason why he believed in God. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, wow. It's like because if you don't, then what else are you going to see? How else are you going to behave as a person? Like there is no other way for people to be. Yeah. Same thing with morality. He said, why do I believe in, 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 in transcendent morality through my fitra? Because to do otherwise would be to throw the world into chaos, to throw man into chaos, to destroy what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. That, that was basically his reasoning. Right. You just become our, our Desi, uh, yo, man, our Desi ancestors, Abar, you and I, and then you. Yours, and yours. My ancestors ain't Desi. Get out of here. <laughs> 
No, so oh, wow, Afghan. What no, but like, is trying to say essentially is that yes, this is the natural way of thinking, and all we're trying to say is that you do not choose on the basis of abstractions or on the basis of even whether or not something um, looks convincing. What you choose is based on how does it affect you and the way mm-hmm. you perceive the world, and that is a pragmatic concern. Wow. That is not truth for the sake of it. There's no such thing as a pragmatist doesn't say you you believe something for the sake of it. That makes no sense to a pragmatist. That's meaningless. You don't love truth for the sake of it. You don't love knowledge for the sake of it. No, you love it because it affects you. Does that make? It makes sense. Yeah. No, I can see not. uh, So even even if someone is saying I believe in this because. For the sake of it, and when, in reality, it's actually because it affects them in a certain way. Well, it's is that right? It makes them well. If you want to go deep into it, it's because it makes them. It makes their experiences feel coherent and organized. It makes them. Mm-hmm. It helps them to make sense of the world. Yes. It helps them to function in the world. Mm-hmm. So two plus two is four, not because necessarily it's true, but because it's useful. Exactly. Well, mathematics is a language anyway. Yeah. The same way we use any other language. I'm going to repeat that. Two plus two is four, not because it's necessarily true per se or in of itself, but because it's useful in my daily life. We consider it to be true because it's useful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, that's, a whole, that's a whole like, paradigm it shift. Internal, it has its own internal consistency, yes, within its own hermeneutic. But the thing, the problem, it doesn't have anything objectively beyond itself. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing. What do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by that? Because you have to understand math is just symbols. Sure. Math is a symbolic structure that was cre- – it's a language that was created to understand the world, and we are trying to see if it corresponds. It has corresponded with – which showcases that the human mind is actually tied to the universe. Yeah. Which I was is going to write an article. If you want to really confuse an atheist, you want to make why it – Yeah, yeah you got to ask them, like, why does – Why does your brain a- of this little animal that evolved from, you know, the, the, the ancestor of an uh, – the cousin of an ape, right – living on this little blue ball in the middle of nowhere in this massive galaxy, how, how is it that we can understand a black hole? Yeah. What, what, what's going on there? The, wasn't there this one essay called like, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences? Doesn't that make sense, though? We live in this... Yeah, little, I, same thing for the concept of God. The same thing that I use for the, the argument for, my, for, for God's existence or the rationality of belief in God. How is it that we live in such a small planet with such small minds, and yet we are conceiving of something that is not immediately apparent to us. Mm-hmm. At least, like the world. Look, okay, and this may this makes a lot. The, of the world didn't have to have patterns, and well, yeah, not even like, we didn't have to be made to understand it. Yeah, but not even that. But think about it. It's like, why would this small little planet? If if we're all just just you know, atoms, mm-hmm. and this is all just a natural coincidence, and there is no intelligence behind everything, right? Whatever. Why is it that the world or in our minds have this conception of intelligence beyond our natural plane of existence, right? There's nothing here that's pointing that out to us unless it's already inbuilt or there's actually some sort of reality behind that. You know what I'm saying? Like there's no reason, there's nothing here that's telling me God. Now, of course, Muslims believe in signs, but that coincides with our fitra because we also believe that we're created. We see design because we're created to see design. Mm-hmm. Right, 
But for a naturalist, it's like, where do you get the idea? Why are we coming up with this idea in our minds? The whole thing with, I brought up the whole thing about the fish in the fish tank, right? I know everyone hates that example for some reason because they don't own fish. But, you know, for me, it's like a fish doesn't understand anything beyond its borders in the fish tank. It's like, it's not going to be like contemplating with this small little brain, you know, whether or not there's a bigger fish tank out there or like there's a, there's something beyond its, its own immediate existence. It only knows what's in those borders, right? That's its world. That's everything it's, it's supposed to know or can know about itself and about its and about its reality. But humans, for some strange reason, despite being confined on this little teeny planet in the middle of nowhere, can understand things that are light years beyond us. What the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. That that shouldn't be possible. It is, but why? And the question is not, the answer is not, I don't know, therefore God. The answer is God because there is no other possibility. Do you see what I'm trying to say? That's the most coherent explanation. Right. There is an intelligence that has given us intelligence, Mm -hmm. you know, and that wants us to know these things. Right. There's nothing else that would make sense. Saying, oh, it's just big cosmic accident and we just happen to be intelligent more than the actual universe itself you know there's no intelligence out there it's only on this little teeny blue planet in the middle of nowhere talk about egotistical i love when atheists call us egotistical because we believe that god thinks we're special Mm. it's like you don't you think you're even more special than that because you think we're the only intelligent things in this whole damn universe like we live on this little blue planet in the middle of nowhere and you think that oh that we're the only smart ones and that the universe would just randomly, or not even randomly, but just unnatural, just naturally uh, organized without any intelligence whatsoever. That we're more intelligent than whatever made this thing. Really? Talk about ego. I'm happy that I'm a human. Otherwise, you know, like I could have been born a fish. Well, you know, but, but think about like how much ego that takes that you think that your intelligence is superior to whatever made this universe. And you have the audacity to claim that theists are arrogant. We're not saying we're more intelligent than the universe or whatever made this universe. We're saying that there is something more intelligent than us and that we're limited in our conception of reality. Atheists are the ones going around, well, you're stupid because you believe there's something that's smarter than you out there. (laughs) Like, seriously? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that was profound to you. For me, that's significant. That was was very profound. That was pretty deep. Yeah. Like, no, like for me, what was profound is that like when you pointed out the pragmatist and you pointed out basically people are are pragmatists just naturally we are we just don't have words i mean the pragmatists are just trying to put words to the to the natural human understanding of themselves and the reality around yeah. them cuz like you said no one empirically proves every single thing that they believe we're we stupid even the atheists they claim that i only follow empirical proof they don't they don't because they wouldn't be able to function they wouldn't be online every day debating with theists if they believe that yeah, maybe they'd, they'd be so skeptical they probably drive themselves to insanity. Right? Yeah, like there's there's too many things that you can't empirically prove that you already accept. No, no. And you, know, you look at even the things that like we're talking about morals again. You can't empirically prove like human rights. No, you can't. Yeah, you can't empirically prove human rights. Like, and why you, you try to argue Darwinian evolution, but even then, you can't. 
that's not really what well, we've evolved to cooperate. Even that is like a stretch. Our whole morals, all our values, our political structure, economic structures, everything that we basically value as human beings. And I mentioned this a lot in many lectures. 90% of the things you believe in as a person that makes you a human being about mm. beliefs, even about yourself, about your family, about other people around you, about society, there's nothing scientific or empirical about it at all. And yet the world works, and yet you as a person work. You, mm. you, you know, you function in the world that you were given. But atheists never question. They never, you know, if, if they, I, that's why I don't believe, and it sounds, they hate when you say this, I don't believe atheists are really atheists because they don't act like that. They act like theists who just happen to remove one part of the equation while keeping all of God's attributes. Wait, how so? They remove God while keeping his attributes in the world. Yeah, I know, but like, how how are atheists? How do how are all closet atheists just atheists? Because they still believe in. Or, sorry, how are closet atheists even, theists? Even though they claim that they don't believe in transcendent values, they act as though those things exist. Yeah. They yeah. cannot do otherwise. You can't go. You can't believe in human rights and be like, "Yeah, I don't really believe this is true." Like that just doesn't make any sense. You can't just be like, "Yeah, you know, I don't. I believe these are just arbitrary constructs that we've designed in order to." You know, yeah, but most people, most people, most atheists do understand that they're arbitrary concepts. They that say just, that, but they don't behave yeah. like that. They right, behave like their life is on the line if they don't support these things. Like society will not function, will not operate unless these things are there. Mm-hmm. Human beings will all die out or be destroyed. Humanity itself will fall to pieces if they don't support human rights. They will risk uh-huh. their lives. And they will demean other people on the basis that they don't follow those things. Right. That's you're acting like a theist. Basically. Yeah. They, they make takfir of everyone who disagrees with them. They yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're basically kafar to them. Yeah. And that's the thing that you don't you don't act like that if you think something is arbitrary. No, yeah, you don't. And, and a legit atheist would be like if you were theoretically you'd be like, oh, here's like a, a murderer. And then here's like an engineer. Apparently, like, they could say, "Well, I feel that way because I'm just naturally inclined to do so." But I know for a fact that it's not really what I should be feeling. And then they'll analyze that and they'll deconstruct it. But they don't act like they just don't. They they act like everyone else. How you're supposed to behave, while mm-hmm. posturing that they don't believe in something when they actually behave like they do. But then you can you can flip that around and put that on Muslims as well. That like, oh, Muslims are supposed to behave as like if they really were Muslims, they were supposed to behave as though they're about to die at any single like at any second, right? They, they should be praying all the time, but yet they forget about death, right? No, our beliefs don't say that. Our beliefs are just as much rooted in the world as they are in, in the in the hereafter. I mean, much of our Theology is centered around doing good things in this world in order to get to the hereafter. I mean, being in yeah, but then why don't why don't people act like that though? Even Muslims, they, well, they spend most of their time in free time, or they spend. Most I, mean, of I don't want to. I don't want to use around. the formal term munafikin because that's that's has a more uh, sinister connotation. Yeah. But you know, they are hypocrites in the loose sense, and there are many Muslims out there, and there are many religious people in general out there that act hypocritical in terms of what they believe and what they, and how they behave, right? What they claim to believe and how they behave. And that's just, that is normal. That is normal for a lot of people. And that is a problem with that individual. And then what they're experiencing is, um, 
in many ways, it showcases that they don't believe in just one thing. Yeah. They believe in multiple theories or multiple or have a mix of paradigm, right? Their paradigm is sort of a hybrid uh, because hypocrisy is not is not simply like um, hypocrisy is not simply saying thing and doing another thing. It's thinking that you believe something, but in actuality, is that you're trying to convince yourself that you believe in something, but in actuality, you know, you don't. You know, it's kind of like um, denial, self-denial. You know, there are a lot of Muslims who try to rationalize themselves as being Muslim while doing things completely contrary to the faith by trying to basically make the, the halal, the, the haram, the halal. You know, you have Muslims out there who actually claim that drinking is halal or that eating pork is halal or eating non-halal food is halal, <laughs> you know, or saying it's not a big deal. Don't judge me. Right. Because, you know, it's between God and me. Well, if you really believe it was between you and God, you wouldn't do it because he's much worse judged than anybody else. If you really thought you, you wouldn't do it. But couldn't they just, couldn't those... No, if you know, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, then it may be say that they're holding on to that faith. Like, yeah, like what I'm confused at is, like, because couldn't, couldn't you say, oh, someone that's sinning, they're just low iman, they don't just necessarily disbelieve. No, I'm not saying they disbelieve. I'm saying that hypocrisy, even in our religion, one can have elements of hypocrisy without being a disbeliever. Oh, that's what you mean. Okay. One can fluctuate between certain things. There are other mm-hmm. levels of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And a pragmatist would say, yes, you need to fix that. Yeah. Okay. But there's a point where it's like, like I said, there are more apparent forms where it's like, okay, you claim you need to pray to be a Muslim. You claim to be a Muslim, but then you say you don't have to pray. You yourself. Like, that's a contradiction. Right. Or it yeah. showcases that you're not really, you don't really believe as you say. You're not who you are. Right, that's that's different from like trying to pray and falling short. Yeah, falling short is like you're struggling with yourself. You're experiencing anomalies that you have yet to, as privates would say, you have yet to work out your issues. Ah, uh, you know, okay. Like you're you're struggling. There's a battle going on, right, between two alternative paradigms. Your desires would would function as another form of paradigm. Yeah, your nuffs, your nuffs, your desires would be what and you're. You're fighting between the two. But you're yeah. still holding on to your paradigm. You're still holding like it's like there's a battle going on. Whereas another person just simply claims with one hand, on one hand, and then they act a completely different way. Mm-hmm. That's that's not a private to say you don't actually believe that thing. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So, like what I mentioned about atheists, like they, they most of them say that morals don't have any real objective value or meaning or purpose, and yet they believe complete contrary to this. They act contrary to this this statement, these statements that they claim. Like that, that makes no sense to me. Yeah. Uh, or so they, they, like, oh, I don't. Read the last question. Anything. Sorry, I don't believe anything without empirical evidence. Yes, you do. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like, like I said, ninety percent of the things you believe in don't have empirical evidence. That's nonsense. Because you act like because you act as though those things that don't have empirical evidence are true. Therefore, they're real. They're real things. Yeah, that's the thing. Like morals, you believe you act like those things are are greater realities are just as greater realities as your own car and your house and the food you eat. Don't sit here and tell me you don't. Well, we're we evolved to be that way as a human species. Well, even then, that's still yeah. But okay, so then you got, that prime minister could fire back and say, if you evolved to be like that, then why don't you act? Why don't you believe in conformity to it? Mm-hmm. Why are you going against your natural inclinations? You're defying your evolutionary development. Why? 
Ah. Okay, yeah, see, that makes that's sense. why these evolutionaries don't work on pragmatists because we're just going to fire back and say that's you see Alvin Planica actually developed, which is funny because he's an analytical philosopher. He doesn't really believe in pragmatism, but he developed a really beautiful argument against evolution, um, which I don't necessarily agree with because I think it could be turned around a bit. But I think it's really interesting how he kind of flips the script. He says basically like you can't really trust your beliefs to be true because what is evolutionarily fit is not necessarily true. Right. Oh, damn. You see what I'm saying? But, it, of course, a pragmatist would respond and say, well, it doesn't matter then because you wouldn't know otherwise. Right, right. Yeah. You'd have to follow that anyway because you don't have any choice. Yeah, no choice, yeah. So, but for for what he's arguing against is very effective. For a pragmatist, right. it was just like, I don't care because I have right. no other. <laughs> Wait, what's evolutionary fit is not necessarily true. What does that mean? Because, like, you could develop an evolutionary trait that helps you survive without that, that thing actually being... Like, you could develop a trait that anytime you hear a certain sound... Right. Like, you'll develop a reaction to run away from it, even if there's no op- there's nothing there to run away from. Ah, uh, okay. Survive, but it doesn't mean that the thing is actually there. Right. 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 Or a certain... Well, no, well, like, like, I guess a good example would be, like, your evolutionary trait for, like... Uh... I don't know what's what's an example like procreation or uh, yeah just just your impulse right like why aren't you why are you denying your impulse of like sleeping with like I don't know ten women or something I don't know uh, well, denying your impulse well I mean so the evolutionary trait would be like okay so you feel aroused with a certain sex right yeah um, so I guess you could say why are you denying somebody could say. Well, I've heard devilish or atheists say that rape is very natural. To me, that makes no sense. Um, Why not? From rape, their perspective, that makes sense. Well, here, rape from is what? their perspective, it makes that no rape sense. Is because natural. rape, from their perspective, even though that guarantees the most, like the best way to quote unquote procreate, I guess you could say, it doesn't function in a way that would help society raise families, which is something right. that's essential to human civilization which is why right. i think nonsense when they say that but um yeah i mean even evolutionists themselves people who believe in evolution they, they tend to go to extremes and, and say things that they don't really comprehend too well uh but yeah so alvin planica would basically say something like okay so everything that that evolves doesn't necessarily lead to truth because it doesn't need to it just needs to lead to lead to survivability right Right. So pragmatists would just argue, well, that doesn't affect me because whatever is survive, whatever leads to survivability is is what we would consider true anyway. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we. I'm already. I'm already understand that. So, like everything that you consider to be true, is only true because it really just helps you survive. Not and just pragmatists. Pragmatists is just like, okay. the world. Survivability is just one part of functioning. Like living is one part of functioning. The other part of functioning is being able to go through the world and understand it organize your ideas appropriately, experience it well, benefits you in terms of your mental, psychological, physical health, et cetera, et cetera. It's a whole holistic way of being. I mean, human beings don't just live by surviving. Surviving is not just the only thing humans do, right? We also love. Right. That's, we experience that's not... beauty. We, we, we experience war, conflict. Right. Yeah, like love. Like, why do you, like, you can't prove, like... Is love like proving emotions? Well, pragmatists wouldn't care. They'd be like, "Why? Why are you were trying to prove something? What? What is there to prove?" Right, right. Yeah, empirically, right? If you were to operate from that paradigm, yeah, like pragmatists would be like, is, is, "Is love real? Like, how do you empirically prove that?" Yeah, pragmatists would say, "Who cares?" 
Yeah. Well, practice wouldn't say who cares, but you say who cares about your method because I experience love. So therefore it's real. Well, this is not necessarily say it's real. It's therefore, this is the only way I can behave. It's the only way I can act and believe. Right. Right. Okay. I can't say with a hundred percent certainty that it is the case mm-hmm. in terms of, cause I don't have full knowledge of the subject, but I have to, but I act as though I do because there's no alternative. There's nothing for me else to be, to behave as like, I love because I am human. I'm human because I love. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else there. If you tell me love isn't real, then I'm going to tell you that you're a moron who doesn't understand what it means to be human. Right. And then atheists that atheists that say that they're empirical, but still believe in love. It, it, that's, that's inconsistent. Well, I need empirical evidence. Oh, it's just all chemicals. Well, I'm sorry. I don't experience chemicals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, even just chemicals. How do you know which chemicals correspond to? Like, you well, can't you really find the chemicals that correspond. It's like I don't experience chemicals. Mm-hmm. Mean... Wait, what is your experience? Isn't your emotion the chemical? No, there's no, re- no, it isn't. My has meaning. Like the reason I sacrifice myself for my wife isn't because of chemical. Hmm. There's more yeah. meaning behind my love, and if I start defining my love as a chemical. You, as a human being, will not understand what I'm saying. Right. Like, you can't function if you define it as just, like, an impulse. Yeah, like, oh, it's an impulse. That's why I'm protecting you. No, that's not how people function. It's not how we talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, do you, so, I know it sounds, it's starting to sound mystical, but it's not. It's just, it's, that, those things are left to the side for the details. But the primate is basically just as this. Holistically, everything that works in your favor to not only promote your survivability, but promote your survival, but to promote your mental, your physical, your psychological health, and that makes sense of the world around you, that helps you to explain everything, and and leaves you with less confusion, and leaves you with you know more answers than questions. That is a belief that you need to subscribe to. Okay, right. that's the belief you need to subscribe to, and um, and these can be determined based on the inner workability and, and external workability. So, internal workability is the internal coherence of the subject or of the paradigm. So, for example, if there are internal consistency, inconsistencies with regard to logic or between other beliefs, then of course the paradigm is there's something wrong about it. Uh, and the external uh, coherence is whether or not it can absorb anomalies or explain anomalies away, or if it can, or if it's the better explanation out of an alternative that is that is you're approached with, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, it basically, it has to be consistent. Its inner, its its inner belief system needs to be consistent with uh, with basically your coherence of uh, of what you experience, and plus of the claims it makes, and then yeah. it needs to be able to explain to be like, like explain anomalies uh, w- yeah. within it without. Without breaking a system. Now, before we go on the next question, if you don't mind, I just want to very concisely remove this misconception of pragmatism. People say, well, what it means by works is that anything that gets you what you want within that given time. Yeah, I was going to ask about this. No, that's not, that's not pragmatism. Because pragmatism requires that you be consistent with your own principles. If you have to violate your principles to get something that you want, then you've actually destroyed the pragmatic aspect of your own beliefs. Hmm. You see, you, know, you actually you become a hypocrite, and hypocrisy—it's right, right. not pragmatic. Yeah, you become a hypocrite. Yeah, so, because hypocrisy is against is pragmatism is opposed to hypocrisy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. So that, that makes sense. Yeah, that's, not, that's not And Unfortunately, groups like Hezbollah Tahir, uh, Tahrir, right, they are the one, they define pragmatism in this way as hedonism. Mm-hmm. And that is wrong. <laughs> yeah, that is wrong. Yeah. So that's not what Amar, Amar, can you explain why it's wrong? Why is pragmatism? Because, because why is if pragmatism it's, not hedonism? Pragmatism is not hedonism because, right, because your beliefs still need to manifest in your in your actions. So if your principle, if you're compromising your, your, your internal principles that you believe, that breaks, uh, that breaks your pra- pragmatic principle because you're, you're, you're contradicting what you're saying you believed originally. No, but what if I just believe hedonism is just the way to live? Then that wouldn't be, no, that's, that doesn't invalidate pragmatism because you just believe, you believe in hedonism as a pragmatist. Yes. You believe in hedonism as a pragmatist. Okay, so then if you're an actual hedonist, okay, if you're not an hedonist, action, then you're then you're then you're consistent, right? If, if you're like a if you're like a yeah, if you're a hedonist and you're a pragmatist and you practice hedonism, you're consistent. But if you're like if I'm a Muslim and I'm a pragmatist and I practice hedonism, then there's like an inconsistency that I need to resolve. Because it doesn't but, work. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, guys. I got it. Yeah. And then if I talk to like I would if I was to talk to a hedonist from a pragmatistic perspective, I would I would actually question why, what is the perp, like, what is the, what is the simplicity of his belief? Why hedonism? Like, why is that what makes the, his, his reality, his universe coherent? Mm, okay. What is the significance of, of that belief? That's what I would ask. Now, if he's, if he's true to himself, you'll find that there are certain values inherent within his actions. That are inconsistent with himself. Yes. Because, because we, yeah, because we believe we're right. Doesn't really think too much about what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's because we believe we're right. Well, you have to believe you're right. There's nothing wrong being right. This is another thing a lot of atheists come across. That they're very arrogant in this way, too, and kind of stupid in the same way when they say, well, you guys act like you're always right about Well, how else am I supposed to act? Yeah, like yeah. me believing in my thing implies that I'm right. Yeah, you want me to go around going, I don't know what I believe. That's not going to help me. <laughs> like, what a, yeah. You know? And they do, too. They just act, they go and say, no, we're very open-minded. No, you're not because you're acting like a jerk. <laughs> they're not open-minded if they were open-minded they would they would consider each and every single possibility yeah you have, uh, in other words you have to be dogmatic about certain things in order for you to even function exactly everyone yeah exactly 100 percent. you have to have, have an opinion you have to be you think you're right about something i mean makes sense yeah you, you you'll make some assumptions on what you believe already on what you believe already yeah so to, you want to get into more detail read this book what's it called by william james by William James. A new, a new, what's it called? A new name for what? For some old ways of thinking. Some old ways of thinking. His first lectures oh, wow. on the subject matter. It'll give you a brief, concise version of what I've just talked about. Um, oh, I hope I've explained it efficiently, but, you know, if you Pragmatism is just another word for fitra. Fitra is your intuition, but pragmatist is basically like, how do you, how do you believe and function based on that? It's like your, it's like your, pragmatism is like the combination of your fitra and your rationale. Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> pragmatism is a pragmatist. Okay, we'll stick with that. Okay, uh, that was pretty good. Because I probably tried to explain it to me before. I didn't really get it. Uh, I hope. I know it sounds kind of vague, but in reality, it's very simple. If you really think about it in terms of how you actually behave and act, and the whole issues with empiricism and rationalism and all this other stuff that's come up in, in recent years, in the past few hundred years, actually, is really actually, I think it's confusing people more than anything. Because it's making you narrow yeah. your perspective when, in fact, that's not how you actually operate. Mm-hmm. You know, 
there are different modes of existing in, in the interpreting and perceiving things. Right, it's not only empirical. Right. Being so, empirical. So, from your perspective, do you believe that there is no one objective way? Okay. Well, no one objective reality? I think that there are such things as facts, and I think there is such thing as truth. But when you're talking about whether or not one can perceive something other than what they experience and believe, no. Okay. Well, like, there's... Well, you say perceive, you do mean experience as well? Yeah, because, look, you can't jump out of your head. Right. Like, all you know is what you see and, and what you experience and what you hear and what you feel and what you think. You know, that's all you know. You don't know what everyone else is. Mm. Only by what they tell you and how they behave. You can sort of deduce certain things, but you really only know your own experiences and your own, and your own perceptions. Right. Like, my understanding of Fahad is not actually who Fahad is. It's my perception. Well, Fahad knows himself more than you do. Yeah, exactly. And you yeah. know more than he does. Yeah, but I, I can't I can't experience knowing him more than he knows himself. You can't experience what he's experiencing either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You wanna go okay. to the last question? Yeah, yeah, let's go to the next one. This is pretty crazy. Are you trying to write a book, Asadullah? Yeah, I am. Okay, what's what's this book gonna be about? It's a lot of things right now. I'm trying to see if I can narrow it down, but basically I'm trying to address the Muslim youth and the Muslim Ummah in general in terms of our thinking and, and seeing if I can I, it's a very um, ambitious project in which I'm trying to see if I can reverse certain things and trying to bring Muslims into a different realm of thinking where we can move forward intellectually That's and I know that sounds very ambitious and, and, and super confident in myself but you know, no, that's like something that, that I, can I have to do. And I don't know if I'll succeed or not, but, you know, that's something that I'm trying to do right now. And, and I'm developing a lot of um, the arguments that I've kind of expressed to you guys and, and a lot of my own approaches to the subjects you know, of ex-Muslims and apostasy and, and modern world, liberalism, etc. are all going to be in this one book. I don't know what I've named it. I have some tentative titles, but... Um, well, the methodology of tentative titles? <laughs> I have to look at them now. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I had one in particular that I really liked, and a lot of other people thought it was a good idea. And basically, it's um, the well, book it's is going to be about Islamic futurism, right? It's not just about atheism. It's not just about. It's about everything. I think that we're dealing with right now, and I'm going to try to make it as concise as possible. Of course, you can't. You know, it's so much to talk about at once, and I may write other articles and, and more detailed. Um, Books on or so on the subject matter at a later point, um, but let's see where's I think I put the title here. I'm sorry. Towards a new Andalusia. No, no, no. See, the thing is, my whole thing is I don't want to actually. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want to Mention bring it. in the past. That's the thing. Like I want to use the past as a form of inspiration, but not as a means of of um, actually getting there. Um, as or, or trying to copy that what happened in the past because I don't think that's possible, and what I mean by that is that we're experiencing things that were not experienced back then, and we're going to be experiencing things that were never experienced in the past. So how can we apply the same structures and ways of thinking from the past to our future? And that's something that you know I want to develop a new paradigm, which addresses uh, a lot of our concerns and what we need to be doing. 
And uh, I guess, and I mentioned this to you guys earlier prior to this podcast, basically I want to develop a form of Islamic futurism where I want Muslims to start thinking about where can we go? Where can we be? Where should we be going? And how can we surpass our rivals? Not how we can be like them, not how we can revive the past and be like our ancestors. No, I don't want Muslims to be like, how do we return to the golden age? I want Muslims to be like, how can we make a new one? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and there's a lot to do with that, you know, and, and it's still very tentative in, in, as well. I, I, there are a lot of details in my head that I really haven't put to paper yet and I really need to. But essentially, um, the whole idea is that I want Muslims to start thinking beyond what we currently have at our disposal here. I want them to start thinking in a way which puts them in the future, uh, which places their children in the future. It's sort of like... Um, we complain so much about what's going on right now and what we need to do to fix right now. And I think the, the actual solutions are not focusing on what's going on right now. I think the solutions are focusing on what is going to happen, right? What, where, how we can reach a certain point, you know, um, we spend so much money trying to re- put band-aids on things that we're not thinking about developing structures and infrastructure and, and um, organizations and methods which which can resolve things for the future, which can put us in a place in the future which is not where we are right now, obviously, uh, which is probably the lowest point that we've ever been in our history. And that sounds all very vague because it is. Uh, I haven't really organized my thoughts that much on the subject. I do know that I think I'm going the right direction. But, you know, um, so for example, let me just give you one that I've thought about quite a bit, uh, the whole issue with the caliphate. Okay, we lost the caliphate. Uh-oh, uh-oh. That's fine. I don't care. We can talk about this. Okay, let's we, talk. Lost, we lost the unity among Muslims, the general political unity among Muslims. It wasn't completely unified in the past, but it was more unified than it is now. We lost the traditional caliphate structure. And as a result of that, we've become disunified. Now, for a lot of Muslims, traditional Muslims out there, they, they keep wanting the caliphate back. Right? They want to bring back that old structure. They want to bring back these things and, and reestablish Islam as this massive empire that you know that's ready to take on the world. Okay, that's fine. You want to have that ideal. Here's my idea. How about you put that as your future focus? But let's move in a pragmatic fashion towards that goal and not think about it idealistically. Let's not think about how the past structured things. Let's not think about what's going on right now how we can develop it, you know, in accordance with our our contemporary surrounding. Let's think about getting to one particular goal that can help us get to that goal eventually, right? So a sort of gradualist approach, but one that's more um, realistic and one that can immediately benefit this ummah for the future, right? And so, for example, I've come up with an idea that Instead of going for this traditional caliphate, right? Let's think about a new paradigm, uh, and let's 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 look at something that is immediately workable, like an Islamic confederacy, okay, between the contemporary nation states. So we're still taking some things from the present, but what we're doing is we're looking into the future, 
in a way where uh, we can resolve a lot of our issues and focus on things that are more productive, let's say, right? Establishing, because establishing a caliphate right now isn't going to happen. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. It's ridiculous to think that way. Um, and there's, there's nothing around in our immediate environment or contemporary sense that is going to help us get there. So Islamic futurists would think, okay, since we're going for the long run plan, let's figure out the best way to that path. Let's not establish it now. Let's figure out what we can do now to get to there. Okay? So, for example, I thought about Islamic Confederacy between nation states, very similar to the EU, but a little bit different in structure in terms of uh, one that continues, you know, makes, uh, that still allows for Muslim majority countries to remain autonomous while simultaneously giving resources to each other, et cetera. And, and basically, you know, um, relieving ourselves of, of current burdens that we have. Don't, don't they already have that in like the Islamic organization? No, it doesn't work. Uh, so the OIC doesn't work. Um, Why? Uh, it What's just doesn't function because the states aren't really, uh, they're not tied to each other in a legal sense in the way that, that would, make, like a spiritual, metaphysical kind of would make it a consequence if they deviated from that plan. So, for example, if you really wanted to have uh, an organization of Islamic cooperation, they would all share the same currency. They would all share the same economic burdens. They would all share the same military powers. Right? Things like this. Okay. Right now, that's not happening. So that's why they're completely autonomous. The OIC is simply an organization that gets together and talks about stuff. They have, there's no legal obligation to each other at all. They can violate their agreements at any point in time without any consequence, right? There's no contractual. Uh, they all say, well, we're all Muslims, so we're all united. No, they're not. They don't care. Okay. You know, if, 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 if Iraq wanted to go to war with Iran tomorrow, or sorry, with uh, Syria tomorrow, or Syria want to go to war with Saudi Arabia tomorrow, they could do it. Nobody would care. There is no contractual agreement or consequence from either side. You know, for, like say if there were member states and they all had this agreement and if one of them violated it, then all other states would be obligated to go to war with that state. That's not going to happen. Right? Mm -hmm. There's no feasible structure right now that is gearing the Muslims towards unification. Likewise, there's no feasible structure. Right? There's no structure right now in the Ummah that is allowing us to be scientifically productive. I mean, you have the university system. University right? system is based what on what? What do you mean, it's based off? It's based, based off, off of like colonial structure, Western paradigm, right? Western paradigms, right? Capitalist systems. Why do you I think it's hard to going overseas? For what reason? But isn't that the same exact paradigm, or that we had, or that Muslims had initially? What do you mean? That like they had universities in the past as well, like University of Baghdad, University. Oh, of we did have universities. Of course, we had universities. What I'm trying to say is, all of our talent is going overseas, though. Why are they going overseas? Because it's better, and more advanced money. Well, for one, they're funded. Money, yeah. Other jobs, right? How yeah. many rich people are in this ummah? There's a lot, actually. Quite a bit. Where is all that money going to? Um, buying cheetahs and uh, even the doctors and the all the Muslim doctors. That's a, that's a good point because even in America, most of the Muslims are what engineers, doctors. Yes, so they have a lot, right? 
Where's all that yeah. money going? I don't know. To their kids? Say to refugees. The houses. Okay. Good thing. We're giving a lot of money to refugees. We're giving a lot of money to Palestinians. We're giving a lot of money to all these people. We're giving a lot of money here, there, there, right? Right. What about the money to invest in technology? Where's the Elon Musk of the Muslim Ummah? Where where are these Muslim entrepreneurs developing businesses and things? Yeah, but but isn't business only going to come when you have like stability? No, not necessarily. Muslims in the West are doing very well for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, wait, I, think I think it's because Muslims don't think big. That's what I'm trying to say. There is a certain level of thinking in this ummah that is not looking at the future. Yeah, they're not thinking. They're small-minded. That's the point I'm trying to make. We don't invest in the future. We're investing in band-aids, and we're investing in trying to bring to revive a past that no longer exists. I want to create a mentality uh, through this sort of movement, intellectual futurism, where Muslims completely invest in things that no longer, that don't exist yet, but can and will. Mm-hmm. For an evident future where our children or our children's children can benefit most from these things. I also want to address things like career choices, like you mentioned. Why are there so many Muslim medical doctors and engineers? For God's sake, no offense. I'm good at it. I agree. I agree. Why? Okay, so what about my field? I would like to advance a movement or even maybe make an organization where I start to uh, promote the idea that Muslims should be librarians. Now, you're probably thinking that's creepy. That's weird. Why is that Why is that necessary? Why would you need uh, librarians? No, I think it's good. Why, but think about it. A lot of Muslims will ask me, like, what's the point of that? What's productive about that? Yeah, why do you want to become a librarian? About it. What if Muslims had all access to major, to all access to information? Around the world, actually, you mean like Google, not just through Google, but actually controlled the flow of information. You mean like a Muslim-owned Google? Okay, so what was the most what was the most prominent thing about the early Muslim community prior to the advancement of science? And prior to the advancement of science in the Muslim knowledge. world, huh? The knowledge we used to have we used to have crazy libraries. We had libraries afterwards, yes, but what did the Muslims do prior to advancing technology and science in the Ummah? There was a movement that happened during the Umayyad period. No, I don't, I don't know. They uh, everything around them. Wait, say that Trading. again? They were translating and collecting as much information as possible. Mm-hmm. They were learning about everything around them. They were modifying text. They were making commentaries on text. Essentially, they were, they were functioning as librarians prior to even advancing a lot of these things. They were learning as much as they could, preserving information. Muslims are still credited to this day for preserving the Greek tradition. Why? Uh, because we did. Because we did. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so libraries or, or, or librarians or information specialists, or you want to call them, were, very, were essential to the golden age back then. So they can be essential now to a new one. Muslims don't like reading anymore. I don't know if you noticed that. No, they don't. I think people in general don't read. No, yeah, but Muslims in general, we should be at the forefront of preserving information of not even that, but even uh, free expression lacking censorship. And what I mean by that is I'm not saying we should be okay with blasphemy. What I'm trying to say is that Muslim, before anyone else, we're preserving heretical text. We're preserving, you know, 
other ideas that were opposed to Islam because they wanted to learn everything around them. That's how they were su- successful in, mm. in, in, in developing things and in also in incorporating other societies into, their, into the, the larger polity and even conquering other civilizations because they knew who they were talking to and who they were dealing with. You got to know your enemy. We don't know anything now because we don't even bother to research anything about the world or to preserve the knowledge that we have around us. Right. Yeah, you're right. These are abstract things. I know these are very vague things that I'm talking about. What about other professions? Not just the engineer, not just the the medicine, the, uh, the, the, the medical doctor. What about teachers? Why don't we promote being a teacher in our own anymore? We don't have that. We, we always we put our lowest achievers in the, in the position of scholarships. Yeah, that's true. Why are we failing? Because we have an idea. Is it is it really that we're looking towards the future or is it because we're focused more on the present? Present. Um, yeah. We want money. We want to be successful right now. But if the idea of Islamic futurism essentially is to change that mentality to think about what's going to happen in the future, to focus on the future, and to say, okay, let's invest because we're going to be somewhere else at some point. But most of them don't think about the future right now. They're not thinking. They're not investing in anything. Not even they're on Akira. <laughs> there are so many Muslims out there who are so focused on just making a paycheck. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 they think that that's okay. That they, they actually think that's part of their faith to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mentality that has been pushed, especially. And I'm going to be frank by Arab society. Oh, they have to make money. That's essentially materialism is, is a very big aspect of. Yeah. Well, I also think it's also it's probably even I mean, more. We don't, really, we don't really have anything else besides ourselves at this current point right now. Isn't it like we don't have a like a central we don't have like a centralized leadership. We don't. Um... Yeah, but these things don't come out of thin air. We can't just establish them and then everything will work. If you don't change the mentality. Right. Gonna care. It's not going to work anyway. Everyone's out for themselves. Everyone wants what's presently going to work in the present moment. You know, we're never going to get ahead. Like I said, the things that I'm talking about are vague because I need to work out the details more. But the point is I'm saying is that Muslims are thinking too much about the past for the present and nothing for the future. Yeah. Yeah. We think it's just going to pop into our lap if we just work hard enough. And it's like, no, that's not going to happen. You have to work in a certain way, in a certain direction. And right now, Muslims don't have anything that guarantees our future in this world. We have nothing. We literally have nothing. I know that sounds really pessimistic. But, no, it's but like, what, are you, what are you trying to look for? No, I, would an example of forward thinking be like Allah Institute by Daniel and the Yakin Institute? Those kind of things? But even that is reactionary. Even that steps in the right direction in terms of relieving doubts, but it's about an immediate problem. Even I'll even admit right now, Yakin Institute is about immediate issues. One hundred percent. No, yeah. Uh, I want to focus on an, an organization, a way of thinking, methodology that focuses on something a hundred years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the reasons the Jews are so successful is because they did just that. Yeah. That's the well, you, ever, you ever hear of blockchain? What do you know about Bitcoin? <laughs> blockchain. That's if you, if you want future thinking, Muslims need to be on blockchain, decentralized. But imagine, <laughs> what, imagine if we had decentralized a centralized not a centralized politics. Let's 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 think about that for later. But imagine if we had our own 
Okay, let's start at the ulama. There are so many, there are various schools and madrasas around the world, right? Yes. But they're not united at all. Like Al-Azhar and, and, and Medina University don't. Yeah, in recent years. There's no conformed Islamic education. There's no unified Islamic education. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can still get scholars from these various institutions, obviously, that are very learned. But why is it that there's no unified Islamic education system? The Vatican has it. No, but that's centralization, you know, that's... Uh, yeah, but yeah. dangerous. But Having that centralization is dangerous. They have a centralized seminary. No, it's not dangerous. It's exactly what we had for a long time. Yeah. If you had your ijazah from certain scholars, you were considered a scholar, right? But nowadays, you don't know where to go. There, there, I mean, you can go to Al-Azhar, sure. But then some people reject you. You go to Dioban, the school or something, but then somebody over there will reject you. Nobody's recognized officially. There needs to be an official rec- recognition across the board from every country that if you go here, you will be accepted. Right? Yeah. There's no centralized education system. What else are we lacking? I mean, you just need a, a milita- militarizing, like. Well, is there a hub? Industrialized, militarized complex. Is there a hub you know, right Kennedy is talking about. Is there a hub in the Muslim world right now for, for the advancement of technology and science? Saudi Arabia? Yes. King Fahd, University of Petroleum? Uh, I'm trying to well, think. Honestly, is there any place in the world a Muslim can, can guarantee right now if they went there they would they could advance science and technology? Uh, Probably like Malaysia. Yeah, Kaos is good. King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. I've been there. Uh, no, I mean, honestly, as, a, as a hub. Turkey. As a hub, like nobody, there's nobody in the world that's going. Yeah, I need or non-Muslims going. I need to go there. They're going to fund my no, research. No, no, there aren't. It's the opposite. There's people going to the, the West. Now imagine some rich Saudi like, sheikhs or rich uh, Emirati sheikhs funded an organization for all the highest uh, funded all of the highest advanced research in the world from they all. They do like they probably do. It's just probably under research. I think. I think no. Also, I think. Yeah, I think you're being a bit like overly pessimistic. No, I am pessimistic because it's true. There's no experiment. There's no place right now in the Muslim world that anyone can consider a hub for any advancement of technology or science in the world today, and that that you wouldn't go there and consider it a research one university. Even my point is, we have a lot of money and a lot of resources, but we don't have enough forward thinking. But if we had enough funding for these things, do you think these scientists would stay in Germany or Italy? Imagine if they got a bigger fund from Dubai. Yeah. I think we're thinking quite materialistically here. We're thinking Part of it is material. Uh, no, we're thinking about like science, like, oh, if we just progress in science, oh, oh, if we just one, get more money, oh, if we just... Certainly. They're, they're like, what's, what's the benefit? At the end of the day, what's the benefit of, of doing all this science? Who are we trying to impress? Trying what to are we trying to do? Better with our own civilization. Any, right, but... Yeah, I guess, like, for example, Muslims don't manufacture their own cars. Yeah, but, like, what's the, benefit, yeah, what's the benefit of that at the end of the day? We don't manufacture anything. <laughs> we make oil, we make plastic and stuff. Listen, listen. you're asking, like, what's the benefit? Yeah, like, bro, like, what's the benefit? Like, we're not, we're, like, you're not relying on other, other, other industries. We are like, completely dependent on everyone else. You're dependent, you're not self-sufficient. We're good diplomats, then. 
We don't even, I mean, we literally, at this point in our existence, it, as, a, as a society and civilization, I am, I am the first to, I'm not the first to admit this, and I won't be the last. And I'm not afraid to admit this, because we have a severe, serious problem. We, we are not, we are no longer the gem of, of the world, and we, are, we, don't even, we don't even give anything. In terms of, as a society as a whole, yeah, as individuals, yes, when we go other places, we give. We have a lot of talent, a lot of money, and a lot of resources, but we're not putting it in the right places, you see what I'm trying to say? Like there's, yeah. there's so much that we as Muslims can do that we're not doing. So what's and, the solution? Huh? Is, is the solution the book? No, the solution is to change people's minds and mentality. Obviously the book is for me is my way of expressing uh, these issues and, and hopefully moving people towards a different way of thinking. And, you know, even if I don't convince, if I convince one person that might, I'm hoping that'll be enough. You know, but it's the same thing with like, um, and I don't, and I, I want to be clear that I don't put myself on the same level as any of these people. But you know, when Al Ghazali wrote his books, what do you think he was expecting? He was just trying to help people through his own experiences and trying to understand the world around him. He was trying to refute these specific philosophers because he felt the Ummah was in danger and he wanted to advance things. He wanted to move things forward. Like anyone else writes books. You know, they want to put their ideas out there hoping that something will catch, something will bite, so that they can hopefully change the world for the better in some way. And that's what I want to do is my contribution. And, you know, if I end up not seeing it in my lifetime, maybe if I die and it happens after that, that'll be fine. But the point is I have to do it. I feel obligated to do so. It's my oral, moral, moral, moral obligation to do it because I need to manifest my ideas for the betterment of other people. And it's also selfish in some way as well, because I personally want to benefit from it. I personally want to see these things happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm tired of being in, in, a, in a civilization that is being stepped on every day. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of it. But unlike the idiot terrorist who's going to go out there and blow himself up, I'm trying to I'm looking to long run because that's also part of the problem with terrorists today. One of the reasons that they are that they have little value for life is because they're not thinking about the future. Yeah, they only think about right now. Oh yeah, that makes no. I, I agree with that. I think, I I think just Muslims having their own just by creating your own your own platform, your own spaces, and you're you're talking about these ideas. That's like that's already like kind of a bit of a a bit of a shift because now you're gonna move people to start thinking about these things. Well, I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, it's what I have to do and say, if I write this book and maybe nobody believes it or maybe nobody follows it, but then one day, maybe some, somebody who's better than me picks it up and finds something in there worth using. Mm, and then maybe they, they write a book that's much better than mine. And that ends up doing something. All ideas are synthetic at the end of the day. Yeah, come every somewhere. major philosopher, every major thinker that you've ever encountered in, in your readings or your life always got something from somebody else. In some way, they were influenced. So. Yeah, solid. Um, to wrap up? I think that covers everything. Fahad. We're, uh, Very we're, uh, no, that's pretty good. Uh, I think we, because like, it was pretty in-depth, we covered a lot of stuff that I wasn't expecting, which was good for me. Yeah. Uh, where where can people reach you? I, I travel, you know, 
like like online and stuff. Online. Um, well, yo, get, uh, get on the Turkestan Discord for all our listeners. Yeah, well, I Discord, mean, not everyone has Discord though. But like, yeah, guys, I mean, this this sounds kind of you know negative as well. But <laughs> recently, I've I've kind of sort of distanced myself a lot from the whole scene. Uh, I do comment from time to time, but I'm trying to focus a lot on myself and kind of like writing articles and things right now in the book because I eventually kind of want to get out of this this arena of, mm-hmm. of Nawa that's persisting right now. Um, and a lot of it has to do with my own personal struggles. But, you know, um, I'm still on Facebook. I'm still Discord a little bit. Um, YouTube, you can find my channels there and stuff, and I'm still going to be making videos for a little bit of time. But eventually, you know, I just want to kind of live a quiet existence. Uh, because well, what a lot of people don't understand, and I, and I think they don't realize, is that for people who do this, who, who are always in conflict with other people in terms of their ideas and spirituality and things, and who are constantly arguing with people, it really drains you and it, and it hurts you a lot, actually. And it's just gotten to a point with me, you know, I've since ever since I started, uh, ever since I converted to Islam, I've been doing this for 11 years straight, nonstop. And it's just gotten to a point where, like, I feel drained. Like, I just need to take a break. Um, And I don't know if I'm coming back or not, but, you know, for the time being, I'm going to put everything I got into it and hopefully... One day I'll, I'll be reinvigorated. And I'll, I'll have the motivation again. But you should take on students. What? You should take on students. You should have like you should become a mentor to. Students. I don't know. If I, I don't think I'm worthy of that. That's the thing. I'm just you know for me it's it's all it's always been a, a loner thing for me. It's like I've always been alone and I've always been part of organizations to help, not to be a singular identity. You know, um, I don't know where I'm going to be going in the future. And I'm sorry to end on this sort of this sort of like very. Uh, Kind of sad. Wait, how, how old are you? You're you can't be more than forty. I'm thirty four. Thirty four. Yeah, you're still young. Yeah, you're I'm still, still very, very, very young. I feel old because of all this, and um, you know it gets to you after. The Prophet son never got his mission until the age of forty, right? Oh, yes, yeah, so, uh, you know the thing is, maybe I don't have any reason to complain. But the point that I'm trying to make is that, um, it's it is hard work. It's hard on the spirit. It's hard. It's hard on the. Your emotions it's hard on your psychology it's hard it's hard on your it's hard on everything and, yeah uh, it's, it's hard on finances too even yeah it's hard on finances you know and when you struggle to do these things every day and you do your best and yet you know you see islamophobes who you get on a video for like five seconds and say i don't like islam and they get like a hundred thousand people supporting them in a few <laughs> minutes you know it's like and you're sitting here and you're struggling for years just to reach people like one person, you know, it, it's, it takes it's a whole lot. Yeah. And, uh, it's something that I've expressed to you, you know, before in person and stuff. And I'm just trying to tell that people know the reason I'm saying this is that don't take things for granted. Don't take other people's efforts for granted. And, you know, if you can support something, even if you don't support that person, do your own best to, to spread a message so that you can relieve the burden off of those individuals. Because there are so many times that I, I every day I, I get approached by people asking me questions and asking me to do things. But then in the same way, when I ask them to do things, they don't want to. 
mm-hmm. or they're not willing to, or they think they're incapable, or they don't want to invest the time or the energy. You know. Well, what, well, what do you mean by that? They want to put everything on one person. Like, can you give an example of maybe an incident like this? Well, I mean, it's just several occasions. It's just that they expect more from you than than they're willing to give themselves. They want to say that dawah is an obligation, and it is in many respects. But then they want to put all their their hopes and everything into one individual or only a certain amount of people, while they themselves still live their normal lives, quiet and away from all of these things. And if you're not willing to support these efforts, if you're not willing to put in as much effort as the people trying, you know, putting themselves on the front lines, don't expect them to take on the burden for that long. Um, because even the companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, tried to share his burdens. They didn't just sit back while he did all the work and then, you know, wave their flags around in support in the background. Yeah. They fought with him. They died alongside him. So part of this, the problem with this Ummah and part of the reason I wanted to sort of also look and uh, sort of promote this Islamic futurism is because you, you, you get what you give. And if you're not willing to give and to invest your time and your emotions and your own intellect into these projects, into the Dawah of others, when they're trying to go on the front lines, if they're waving the sword out and they're going, let's go into battle and there's nobody behind them, don't expect success. So what, what should people do then? Well, they need to start supporting these these sort of projects more, like you know, like your or even everywhere else. They need to start spreading the message, marketing themselves, unifying us, unifying together under one banner for for one um, goal. We need to stop being petty and stop being lazy and stop thinking only about ourselves and our immediate experiences and and and, and goals. We need to start thinking for the future. And, you know, you have a lot of Muslims online who keep complaining about our youth leaving the religion, complaining about this, complaining about that. But what have you seen have they people do? Yeah, they haven't done anything. What they do is complain. I've yeah. seen people complain about Yakinis too. Oh, they're not doing it right. They're not doing it right. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. What are they doing? Watching, you know, cricket games and integral series or whatever and you know, sharing memes online about stupid things, which is fine to some degree, but if that's all you're going to do while you're critiquing and and complaining all day, then what's going to happen? So sorry to leave on a, a sad note, a pessimistic note, but my point is, is like, you know, Muslims need to change their mindset. Don't expect so much from the people who are trying to do stuff like you guys and myself and everyone else and support everyone as best as you can. It doesn't have to be financially. Even like, even like just leaving a good comment or sending a, a nice message. A lot. I mean, that helps me because there are days where like I'm so down in the dumps and just seeing a comment from somebody that I've never met saying that your work has helped me or helped somebody else, that makes me keep going. Yeah. No, 100%. I, I even feel that as well. Like I feel very, very happy when, when people give me like a thumbs up or like on a video or like leave a really nice comment. Yeah, that keeps me going as well. Or if someone messages me out personally, even that's uh, I, I get on top of the world for that day. And more Muslims see Muslims today seem more concerned about Nicki Minaj than they do. About... Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. It's annoying. So yeah, and also yo, Asadullah puts in like maybe a hundred times more effort than me and Amar do with uh, with everything. So yeah, no, hundred percent. I believe your content. Uh, your your also the laws, your content along with Daniel's. I actually think it's quite important because you 
you critique liberalism uh, in their own language, per se, and you're yeah, able to break. And yo, these guys they write like act like properly academic articles too, and get it published. Whereas like we just make podcasts and we just talk about stuff. No, the podcasts are important. You I mean you're creating a platform for people to speak when we don't have platforms today. I mean we have to create our own platforms because nobody else is giving us one. Yeah. I mean, this is this is integral, you know, like you guys and boys in the cave and all them. They're doing as best as they can to give us voices that when we, when, you know, when we're shouting from the abyss, and nobody wants to pick us up. But you know, you guys are, are are going down there and picking us up for them, trying to make a fair platform, especially online. That's essential. Yeah. The problem is whether the Muslims are willing to support those efforts because we have a lot of Muslims today. Like I said, they complain. They know there are problems, but they refuse to do anything. Like they want everything to fall into their lap. Hmm. And I'm sorry if that's not, like I'm bashing this Uma, but you need to slap people around sometimes to wake them up. And it's time for, for these Muslims to wake up before it's too late because we're getting to a point now where it's like either you change the way you think or everything around you that you see is going to get worse. And it is getting worse. It's getting worse every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also another difference I just want to let the listeners know that like Asadullah he's put his entire like his his livelihood in this right he's put his entire career in this as well okay like he's had to uh, at one point you've even had to like change what you're studying in order to like just keep up with finances right yeah I did um, yeah so go guys just I'm going to say straight up go support his Patreon no, you don't have to. My, my point, but my point is, you know, just having that support, being able to get our message out, that would be sufficient for me. Yeah. You know, if, if I could, if I, if my, if my content could rival the popular Islamophobes online, I'd be happy. But right now I have, you know, Alhamdulillah, I have enough support where I can say that there are Muslims out there who care. Like, you know, having 10,000 followers on Facebook is a decent thing. You know, it's not. It's not something to, to scoff at or to sit here and be like, oh, you know, I, I feel so, whatever. But why is it that there are fewer Muslims willing to support the work that we're trying to do to combat Islamophobia and, you know, and all this nonsense out there? And there are so many more people willing to support those hateful people, those hateful individuals. Why is it that, you know, an idiot, a literal, like a literal idiot, somebody with below average intelligence with no formal education can have a hundred thousand something followers on a social media platform and spread their message to the point where they're getting the attention of people that don't even deserve, they don't even have the right to be talking to. And yet people who have struggled to study and have sacrificed so much, not myself particularly, but like a lot of other people, who are actually doing real researching and trying to spread good content, but all their time and energy can barely get, you know, a few hundred views or 5,000 or 10,000 people supporting their work and spreading it around. You can't, you can't, you can't battle these bad ideas this way. Where are the Muslims? Where are they? That's what I'm asking. Where are they? There are more of us than there are of these idiots. Where are you? That's a good question. Watching cricket, man. Watching cricket. You don't want this woman to die, but you are letting it die. Where are you? That's all I'm trying to say. And, you know, it's, it gets frustrating, and I'm tired of it. I'm really tired of it. I've almost yeah. given up completely on everyone. It, there's, there are days where I just want to drop everything and just be like, screw it. 
you guys kill yourselves off. I'm going to go enjoy my life. Because honestly, it's hard to put so much emotion and time into other people when they don't care about themselves. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I sound really mean. But I, that's how I really feel. And I'm sorry. But that's just how I feel. And I don't know how else to feel right now. So That's fine. Inshallah. Yeah. I think... I think you should keep going. Uh, we got you on the support. We'll uh, we'll spread the message. Uh, you know, after eleven years straight, part time. Uh, like you know, you can you can do what you need to do. Uh, if you if you need to take a break, but just don't like don't disappear. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's what people keep telling me. But it's like just don't disappear. You can yeah keep it keep it on the low. But, but this is how I disappear. feel. This is like this is literally what's in my heart right now. This is like how I feel. Like every day, it my my belief in this like apathy of wanting to be apathetic increases because i'm not seeing people coming to the stage going okay like here's we need to start doing this we need to fix this let's do this let's do that there are very there are very few and it just it boggles my mind that there are so many people complaining but not willing so many muslims complaining and wondering what's going on in the world but they don't want to do anything Mm -hmm. i don't i don't get it i don't i do but i don't i just that's why i want to write this book because i'm hoping to god that it'll plant some seed yeah, inshallah. Well. So, inshallah. So, okay. Yeah. I'm done. Should we wrap up? Yeah, and I yeah. apologize for any vulgar words that I use, etc. I don't mean to be like that. I'm just being blunt. Uh, it's good. It's good. I'm it's cool. irritated, so I apologize. Nah, you, yeah, you can be with us. It's cool. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yo, Asadullah, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and we hope for the best for you in the future and Akhira and uh, we ask Allah to make things easy for you. And we ask uh, we ask the viewers as well to uh, make things easy for us and share share our content and, and like pay us. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, as well. Um, and send us words of encouragement, inshallah. Amen. I mean, I mean, yeah, Rab, and then uh, for you guys who I, you guys are not allowed, so like, just, just do what I say. Okay. Take care, guys. Okay. So I'm like.